This program is brought to you by the Genesis Communications Network, a world leader in talk radio since 1998. Visit GCNlive.com today. Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Our guest of the day, evening, or whenever you listen to this show, and on whatever planet, Micah Hanks is here, and he has this avatar of him smiling. Or well, not really a smile, it's like a half smile. I think you're trying to channel the Mona Lisa or something? Perhaps. You know, I'm really glad that you noticed the smile, Gene. Being a friend, I, I figured you would because most people always comment on my eyebrows. They say your eyebrows, you should you should keep a safe three-foot distance from people at all times because those eyebrows could knock somebody's, you know, block off. I don't think they're that overpowering, but, you know, that's what I always hear from people. So I have to be very mindful of my physiology, I guess. <laughs> we have slick back hair. And about the eyebrows, you can't just move one of them up like Mr. Spock could. Uh, well, I do. I guess that's my problem. They must think I'm a Vulcan, Gene. That's what it is. Well, we have to adjust the ears. You do have kind of that <laughs> Vulcan look. If we just do something to the ears, I think we'll have it. Yeah, that's, that's what I've been aiming for all along. We had a friend of yours on the show a couple of weeks ago, Joshua Warren. Oh, yeah. No, you know, Josh uh, is a fellow who I happen to be not only uh, friends with of many years, uh, because he is an Asheville native, and so it was, I guess kind of by more than just chance, perhaps by some divine fortitude or something that we would come to know each other. Being from slightly different disciplines, he is someone who is, you know, very much into the kind of the paranormal world, whereas I've become more hardline science uh, with, you know, keeping one foot in ufology over the years. But as time goes on, I really consider myself more a, di a disciple of William R. Corliss. But I'll tell you, people may not know this about Warren. He was the first guy that introduced me to William R. Corliss. We'd go to his house, and uh, he and I would catch up on Monday nights, and you'd usually be sitting there drinking bourbon when I was in my early 20s. What I loved about Josh was he had all these great books, and he had William R. Corliss. Uh, for anyone out there in the listening, listening audience who doesn't know who that was, he was an American physicist who was, as I hope to be or aspire to be a disciple of his, he was a disciple of Charles Fort, whereas Fort liked to kind of smack the scientific establishment, uh, Corliss borrowed heavily from scientific literature, as Fort had done, but he relied more on, I think, scientific consensus while highlighting anomalies in nature. You know, he'd do the, the source books. Gene, did you ever read any of those? Probably a long, long time ago. Why don't you <laughs> summarize it quickly and let's move on. Yeah, sure. I mean, very quickly, there are these general source books which you can buy online, and I'd highly recommend them. Uh, but then there were the individual source books that would talk about, for instance, geophysical anomalies, astronomical anomalies, archaeological anomalies. And he was, again, just a person who had a broad interest in all areas of the sciences and the mysteries that lie therein. So Josh Warren was the first guy that introduced me to those books, and I'm still a fan of those to this day. And occasionally, when he's around, I still see Josh uh, here in the Asheville area. But he's usually traveling. And so am I. <laughs> well, William Corliss died in 2011, for those who want to look him up. But he was around quite a few years. He was born in 1926, so he lived a good, long life. Now, the reason I bring up Mr. Warren here is that he had his friend, 
outfit me with one of his wishing machines, a radionics device or a Hieronymus box, as Uh it were. So now we're going to see what that does to me, whether (laughs) it sends weird creatures at the night into my bedroom, other than the little white dog that occasionally sticks his nose into other people's business. (laughs) Well, I guess we'll just have to see how the chips fall on that one, huh? Yeah, let's just see what happens. I'm not prejudging this. I'm just saying it's here. It was set up in accordance with the instructions, and we'll let it run. After a few months, we'll see what we report if it makes things different or better or whatever. But we want to talk about something else because you brought something to my mind here that I had forgotten. And it's kind of sort of begins in the early days of UFO studies. I know a lot of times with cases, we're trying to move away from that, like we've moved away from Roswell. We don't cover a lot of these things. And we never really got into Aztec that much, although we've had some shows on it. But something you reminded me here about is mystery satellites, which Major Donald Kehoe mentioned in his various books. And that sort of kind of sort of disappeared over the years. We stopped hearing about it. Now, this happened, correct me if I'm wrong, Micah, this happened before we had our own satellites, before Sputnik was launched. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we're, we're seeing, for instance, in the literature, essentially the observation of objects orbiting Earth, often by very qualified astronomers, that dated back to the early 1950s. And it's, it's interesting because, well, you may remember a few years ago, I wrote this book called The Ghost Rockets, which begins with the Scandinavian phenomenon. But then I move forward and I find all these very you know, similar reports that over the years, over the decades, even up to the present day, there's a certain continuity to them. Well, with this mystery satellite thing, and I brought this to the program today, by the way, just because I knew that you would appreciate this often excluded uh, discussion as it relates to Donald Kehoe. And in fact, actually a phenomena, perhaps a celestial phenomena or several of them that goes even further back to the middle 1800s. You'll begin to find, if you really dig into the history, when you're investigating these kind of things, that there is often a certain kind of continuity, and people will see a phenomenon like this, and the way that it was being widely reported in the newspapers beginning, you know, around 1954 and 55, but the earlier reports go back a couple of years before that, as we'll delve into later. But yeah, there's definitely a, a, a continuity. The phenomena, as it began in the 50s, certainly seemed to represent, again, whatever they were, objects that were in Earth orbit but we shouldn't have had the technology at that time, at least not for a few more years, to be able to put something up there into an orbit, let alone a retrograde orbit, which is what uh, many of these objects appear to be doing in the years that would follow. Now, some of Kehoe's speculation included motherships. You think that if flying saucers came here from other worlds, they travel in big, maybe city-sized spaceships, and then as they approach the planet, they would orbit the planet and send their scout ships to Earth or whatever planet they were visiting. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, you know, it's not that far out an idea, and a lot of people have entertained it to this day, people. I mean, have, have looked at that idea, and we could put it like this, Gene. If we look at, for instance, uh, recent studies, which, of course, look at uh, over the period of, of 12 months, you know, one year, what happens to an astronaut when we put them in space? Some of the most fascinating studies we've seen, of course, involve twins, where we see the biological differences between identical twins in which, you know, gut bacteria, brain function, eyesight. Of course, we know with, with regard to musculature that there's a certain, you know, propensity for atrophy in a, in a zero-gravity environment like this. But uh, 
we're seeing that, again, the effects on biological organisms is pretty great. And so, you know, for a number of years, I've kind of thought the same way. I mean, would it be more likely, perhaps, that whatever the UFO phenomena were, let's suspend disbelief depending on our perspectives on what UFOs are or may be or may not be, let's go with this conventional idea that Kehoe was operating under in the 1950s, that we were indeed looking at something extraterrestrial in origin. His theory had been that, yeah, maybe scout ships would be more likely as far as what we saw in our atmosphere. And even leading scientists of that era had said, well, you know, we're not so sure that, we, that a living organism could pass through the Van Allen radiation belts. We now know that, of course, that can be done. But at that time, they weren't certain that that was an even, uh, even a, a, a plausible scenario. And so the idea of a scout ship, perhaps remotely controlled, a drone in other words, being sent into Earth's atmosphere from an object parked outside our atmosphere or orbiting the Earth, that was really kind of a, a leading theory among those who were willing to take seriously the idea of UFO phenomena back in the early days. Although now we know, of course, that if we can get around that in likelihood, other biological entities may as well, we still have to deal with the idea of such entities with whatever technology at their disposal traversing great distances through space and time in order to come here and interact with us. So this is one of the things that has led Jacques Vallée and a number of others over the years to be less, you know, warm, Gene, to that idea of the ETH, okay, the ET hypothesis. But I think that, again, however you want to look at it, it seems like there is a, a strong likelihood that other intelligence elsewhere in the universe would be doing things at some stage in their in, uh, development, which in truth is kind of similar to what we've done. We send robots to Mars to examine the Martian soil. We send you know, Voyager and we send all kinds of probes out into deep space to take photographs of our solar system and also places even further out. We've got more to come with Micah Hanks of the Graylian Report. Mystery satellites, something that we don't talk about much anymore. Are they gone? More to come. With Gene and Micah, you're in the Paracast. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items. And entails t-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast Jumbo tote bag, all sorts of t-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great t-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. If you go to store.theparacast.com, stop by and take a shopping tour. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I would wake up with a sore neck, maybe a headache, or feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. When I invented my pillow, I wanted it to where you could move the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep REM sleep faster, and you will stay there longer. 
longer. It's not about how much time we spend in bed. It's about how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all of my own manufacturing right here in the United States. I have a 10-year warranty. You can wash and dry my pillow, and I give you a 60-day money-back guarantee so you have nothing to lose. And here's my best offer ever. You can buy one of my pillows and get one absolutely free. Go to MyPillow.com or call 800-870-0305 and use promo code GCN. That's MyPillow.com or 800-870-0305 with promo code GCN. Hunters, anglers, campers, and survivalists. Get back to nature. Expand your horizons with the highest quality, most versatile, unique slingshots and sling bows on the market at slingbow.com. Slingbow products are compact and models start from just $17.98. They're perfect for your bug out bag or storing in your vehicle. Give yourself and your loved ones the excitement and tradition of Slingbow. A new frontier in archery and truly modern twist on this primitive survival tool. Feel the thrill only at slingbow.com. Is negative content or comments on the web affecting your personal or professional reputation? Unfavorable comments, embarrassing pictures, videos, legal documents, and negative articles can ruin your personal life, your career, or your business. It happens a lot, and it's just not fair. But what can you do? ReputationDefender.com can help protect your good name. Get a free consultation now. Call 800-831-0771. That's 800-831-0771. Call right now for a free expert reputation analysis. It's easy to squash the unfair attacks with our patented system, and the analysis is absolutely free. Make the best things about you jump out in searches. Protect your personal and professional reputation, your business, and your income. Get your free reputation analysis from ReputationDefender.com right now. Call 800-831-0771. 800-831-0771. That's 800-831-0771. Or visit ReputationDefender.com today. Taking turmeric is good, but there's a problem with it. The active ingredient in turmeric, known as curcumin, is poorly absorbed into the cells due to its large particle size. But now, One Planet Nutrition has the answer for this powerful anti-inflammatory. Nanocurcumin, a nanoparticle curcumin which absorbs over 40 times better into your bloodstream. Discover more health benefits of nanocurcumin and nanocurcumin plus now on sale at OnePlanetNutrition.com. Use promo code GCN for your special discount at OnePlanetNutrition.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So we continue with Micah Hanks. We're talking about, to start, mystery satellites and their implications, bringing back an old mystery that... I haven't seen discussed in years. I do want to discuss this, though. We have a special feature of the show called The Paracast Plus. And to learn more, you go to plus, P-L-U-S dot theparacast dot com. That's plus dot theparacast dot com. I got a letter the other day from a listener saying, how do you pay for it? Well, we've got two ways, basically. One is PayPal, because it uses the PayPal recurring payment system to handle your subscription. But if you don't have PayPal, there's an option to use a credit or debit card. Plus.thepowercast.com. You get the After the Powercast podcast. You get the commercial-free version of this show and more stuff. Prices start at just $1.49 a week. Our price, cheap. Micah Hanks is here. You've got a subscription kind of thing going on, too, with Grayley and Report, don't you? 
I do indeed, yeah, which is one reason I was so glad to see that you guys were doing the Paracast subscription situation as well, because it's always a great way to get people who really like the show a little more involved. So yeah, kudos on that, Gene. It's a way to give you a chance to really support the show because we give you extra stuff. And you can't give everything free. Otherwise, you can't pay the bills. You can't pay for all the equipment to run this show. And you can't pay for the food. Of course, if you, you know, maybe if you're a space person, you could use energy. One thing I want to ask, though, before we go on with mystery satellites, and that is we look at all this UFO stuff in light of our own expectations. So we think, well, we're exploring other planets. We're using robots and maybe they send robots here. And maybe we travel a long distance. We probably use a very large spaceship. And then it would send scout ships to an individual planet. But we're looking at that in terms of our science fiction concepts of space travel. We're looking at this as someone in the early 21st century. How are things going to be a couple of hundred years from now? Or 500 years from now? But we're assuming that technology would move in a way that we even understand But what if we're dealing with space people who are thousands and thousands of years ahead of us? Would we even recognize their technology? That's a really great point that you raise. You know, I was talking with our mutual friend, Stanton Friedman, back uh, about a year ago. In fact, this very month, a year ago. And uh, as he and I were uh, riding together out through the mountains of California, having not only enjoying the scenery, but having this great talk about uh, some of the ufological icons of yesteryear, whom many never even talk about today, like Alan Hendry, one of my favorites. He was discussing some of these things, and we stopped uh, in Riverside and had lunch. It's a funny thing because you could look at this phenomenon like UFOs and say, oh, you know, visitors from space, which Stanton has maintained for a long time. And then you've got people like me who might come along and be a little more skeptical and say, well, I don't know about the visitor from space angle. Could be, could be any number of things. But How likely is it that extraterrestrial biological entities would come to Earth? We see our drones, we see our probes, we see our landing rovers and things that we put up on other planets. And like you say, as far thinking as we think that we are, as as, as far out there as we think we're getting in terms of, well, then aliens would probably do the same thing, right? Well, then look at a, a technology, hundreds if not, like you say, thousands of years more advanced than ours. Let's at least you know conceive of a technology that could survive without the mutually assured self-destruction and things that Sagan warned about and many others of the years. Let's say that they evolved differently and that they were less likely to engage in warfare as we humans have done. Uh, yeah, we could absolutely still be dealing with an actual physical presence or something that may transcend physicality altogether, but nonetheless is a presence that is here, which exceeds all of our expectations based on that anthropomorphization, I guess, of what we're doing. You know, we we can't help but think essentially like humans, because that's kind of what we are, right? We're humans, I think, most of us at least. Well, the other assumption here is that they would be humanoid at least, and that might be possible. I'm not going to dismiss that possibility. But what would the human race be like 500,000 years from now, a million years from now? How can we even predict what form they take? Obviously, in Star Trek, we have individuals becoming pure energy, So what this may mean is that what we see as UFOs or space people might be, number one, play acting. They're trying to appear in a way we understand. Or our subconscious has to manage all this information it can't comprehend, so it alters what you see. So we go back to the 1950s. Of course, there were cases before that, and we want to get into that. But we go back to the 1950s, And we think, okay, satellites, 
That's near-term technology. But let's go on. Why did Kehoe get involved in this? What kind of cases did he glom onto? Well, you know, Kehoe is one of these interesting guys. I, I own a lot of his books. And really, I mean, as, as much as he was one of the preeminent UFO investigators of his age, as you know, uh, a lot of modern uh, authorities on the subject don't reference Kehoe as much. Uh, much as I mentioned uh, Alan Hendry, there are a lot of luminaries of, of the ufological past which are kind of overlooked these days, which is uh, unfortunate because there were a lot of great thinkers with a lot of great ideas. And, and uh, Kehoe, again, he was very beholden to this extraterrestrial hypothesis. But what got him interested in these satellites, I think, really takes us back to 1953. And at some point, I do want to go even further back. But let's get the core story as it relates to UFOs down first. Lincoln La Paz, of course, he had been part of the investigation into these green fireballs that started appearing you know, right around 1946, 47, 48. Around 1953, La Paz purportedly saw some strange object visible only through satellite uh, that was orbiting Earth. And uh, Kehoe had actually written about this a number of decades later, uh, commenting that during 1953, the Air Force began experiments with new long-range radar equipment, and while making the initial tests, Air Force operators were astonished to pick up a gigantic object orbiting near the equator. And it was estimated, Gene, that around the time, the speed of this object was about 18,000 miles per hour. And the Air Force had checked this repeatedly, and it seemed to show that the tracking on this, in other words, the speed and the direction and everything, was indeed correct. In other words, some huge unknown thing, some object, was circling about 600 miles out. Now, some would dispute that uh, estimate a little later. But what's interesting is that around the time of that initial discovery, which I suppose was probably uh, based on the observation by La Paz, there was another satellite object that again appears to join this object. They estimated this one was a little closer to Earth by about 200 miles, placing it at about 400 miles distant. So the Defense Department put together an emergency satellite detection project at White Sands, New Mexico. And on March 3, 1954, the following year, they released an official statement at the Joint Guided Missile Test Range at White Sands, New Mexico. This is really where it all gets interesting because they officially announce what they think they're looking for. And this is what really got Kehoe interested in all this. Their statement was that the Armed Forces Army Ordinance state that we're searching for tiny moons or moonlets, as they called them, natural objects which had come in from space and were now orbiting the Earth. They'd not been tracked or discovered sooner, according to a spokesman, because they were following orbits near the equator, and the scarcity of ob observatories there had made them harder to locate. But also special automatic tracking cameras moving at the satellite speed would, they believed, be required to be able to see these, because such fast-moving objects gave off very little light, and ordinary telescopic cameras could not reveal them. And so it was the Armed Forces' intention at that time uh, to locate any of these so-called moonlets, uh, which could be used as space bases, for launching missiles for the country's defense. So what's interesting about this is it implies that the Army was interested in seeing if the Earth had, if not a second moon by definition, little moonlets, space objects that had somehow entered Earth orbit that they could use for defense purposes. Let's continue with this and Micah Hanks. More to come with Gene and Micah. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. The answer to being in control of your own health care is freedom from insurance. Become part of a group of self-pay patients that come together to share in each other's medical expenses. Individual share amounts begin at $107 a month and $347 for families. Choose from three health sharing programs. Holistic treatments may be eligible for sharing. See guidelines. 
Discount programs available for dental, vision, and pharmacy. Go to libertyoncall.org. That's libertyoncall.org. Have you ever wanted a shortcut to getting the underground secrets to making money online and seriously grow your business? Whether it's a new business, a part-time income, or an existing business, you have this incredible limited offer to get a copy of this Amazon best-selling book on dot-com success for free. Uncover the success factors to make your business ignite. Go to secretsignite.com. That's secretsignite.com. Get your free copy now. Go to secretsignite.com. My computer is so slow, it's making me crazy. I used to have that problem. Did you quit using a computer or did you buy a new one? No, I called Geeks on Site. They made an appointment to visit my home and showed up the same day. You mean they didn't ask you to bring your computer to a shop? That's what happened when I called a support company. Geeks on Site can go to your home or business or even repair your computer online. They have 24-7 emergency service. If you're having problems with your PC or Mac, call Geeks on Site. 1-800-591-1682. Our friendly certified computer repair Repair experts are available 24-7. Call now for a free diagnosis. 1-800-591-1682. Data recovery, virus removal, and maintenance for all laptops, desktops, printers, and networks. That's Geeks on Site for friendly certified computer repair experts available 24-7 over the phone or in your home or business. Just call 1-800-591-1682. That's 1-800-591-1682. 1-800-591-1682. If you or someone you love is suffering from hearing loss, please stay tuned for a special free offer from the makers of a revolutionary hearing breakthrough called Listen Clear. Listen Clear is precisely designed by top audio engineers to fit the ear almost invisibly, and it can be adjusted to find the perfect way to hear everything in every listening environment. Right now, we're offering absolutely free in-home trials to everyone who calls now. 1-800-713-3227. Call in the next 10 minutes and you'll also receive free shipping and free batteries for life. ListenClear is lightweight and practically invisible, so people won't notice when you're wearing it. So again, if you or someone you love is suffering from hearing loss, please give them or yourself this life-changing 100% free in-home trial with free shipping and free batteries for life. For free information, call now. 1-800-713-3227. That's 1-800-713-3227. 1-800-713-3227. Hi, Peter Vaccaro for ParanormalDate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up for free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, mysteries, ghosts, UFOs, and the afterlife, and so much more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you. People seeking a viable alternative to the other dating services. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com. And if you decide you like it and want to connect with people, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. Mark Rawlings, president of ParanormalDate.com, says so many people hunger to share their experiences about the paranormal, the unexplainable, or the afterlife, and so much more. And this is the source for them to meet and share that common interest. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. ParanormalDate.com. And use the code GEORGE if you decide to connect with someone you like. Hi, it's Grant Cameron from PresidentialUFO.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
We have Micah Hanks. We're talking about moonlets, mystery satellites, the sort of thing that Lincoln La Paz was talking about, the sort of thing that Major Donald Kehoe was looking into. Now, just in passing, because I met Kehoe a few times and interviewed him a couple of times, one thing about Kehoe is that I think his basic belief in UFOs, that they were spaceships, the government knew the answers, I think 95% of the prevailing beliefs in the 21st century about UFOs echo Kehoe for the most part. Would you disagree? Not at all. No, I okay. think you're absolutely right. He formed the paradigm of UFOs. All right. Well, let's go on here. Let's talk about moonlets. Now, moonlets, we're talking about tiny satellites or asteroids, maybe? Yeah, the, the general idea. There is some scientific literature about this that over the years has speculated about how a asteroid you know, a meteor, you know, a large enough space rock could enter Earth's atmosphere and yet not come plummeting down to Earth. Digging into this ufological thing, which we can come back around to a little later, it got me really interested in a tangent phenomena, which really I think has to be understood to really see where we're going with this, which involves the search for Earth's second moon. Gene, did you know that Earth had two moons? <laughs> well, wasn't one of the contactees supposedly from a planet that's opposite the Earth? That's why we never see it. Yeah, you know, you've heard stories like that over the years. And there have even been speculation about there being uh, a second moon, but not or orbiting Earth, uh, an actual satellite orbiting the moon, which we can come back to a little later. So the but moon that, has a moon. Well, that was the theory. And actually, what I would say is that the Earth technically right now has uh, a second moon, Now, which that may sound crazy. But as recently as 2016, yeah, it was confirmed that there was an object that is in, it shares an orbit with the sun, but it's definitely considered to orbit Earth. And so, yes, we have a moonlit right now. Okay. So, I'll tell you what, we'll take this back and we'll try and understand exactly why people believe that there was a second moon. It goes back to 1846. And at the Toulouse Observatory, there was an object that two observers there had claimed that they had seen. And the director of the observatory there, uh, Frederick Petit, had announced in 1846 that they believed that a second moon existed based on what they'd seen. Now, here's what I speculate. If indeed these space objects can come into orbit around the Earth, and these are the sorts of things that may have been seen in the 1950s, it stands to reason that about you know, 100 years before that, maybe there were astronomers who were seeing them too. But they were fascinated by this, and they thought, well, if we're seeing some object and it's orbiting Earth, maybe there is a moon that is of a different composition from the known moon, and perhaps it therefore doesn't reflect as much light, and we can only see it with uh, proper I don't know, uh, optical equipment, i.e. telescopes. And so maybe this thing's been essentially a hidden, a secret second moon. And so by around the 1850s, astronomers were getting kind of interested in this idea. In fact, uh, Jules Verne plays this up in, in 1865 when he uh, published From the Earth to the Moon. He not only mentions a second moon, but actually credits Petit from the Toulouse Observatory as being the discoverer of that. Gene, that's something you talk about a lot on the program. I love when people tie in these obscure bits of science into their science fiction, and you know, Jules Verne was great at doing that. I know that Edgar Rice Burroughs did a lot of that when he did his books on Pellucidar, which is about a hollow earth and a civilization there, about what Mars might be like, that sort of thing. Yeah, some of my fav absolute favorite stuff as far as science fiction and fantasy goes. But throughout the 1880s, we continued to see unusual things. And I've really done a lot of mining over the years, trying to find references, whether or not they were accurate 
in, in terms of what the, the observers were seeing, but trying to find references to what were interpreted at the time by astronomers as having been possible sightings of Earth's second moon. And one of the most interesting ones comes from 1881. We had the American polar explorer, Lieutenant Adolphus Greeley, and he was in Greenland at the time. And he observed something very strange in the sky and, and logged this. And it was 10 days after the sun had actually set for the winter at that polar extremity. And so it was believed later uh, by an astronomer, uh, astronomer from Hamburg named uh, George uh, Waldmath that he had maybe seen Earth's second moon. And, and Waldmath later went on to become a proponent that this second moon existed. Uh, we had other people who had seen something strange too in 1884, just three years later. And we had a weatherman from Canada named... E. Stone Wiggins. That's always an interesting name. And he had appeared in print in the New York Tribune and had said that, indeed, he had seen a second moon, but he'd seen it two years before that, which would have been only one year after Adolphus Greenlee had seen his in Greenland. And um, so Wiggins would go on to become this proponent. I mean, maybe one of the, the greatest of the late 19th century. He believed there was a second moon and we could predict where it would appear. In 1886, we had this New Zealand report that appeared in the Toronto Globe that described a green crescent moon of the most brilliant yet delicate shade recently seen in New Zealand. They said the phenomenon was visible for only half an hour. It has been seen since in North America, but each time only for about 29 minutes. And so for a while, I mean, it really began to kind of look like there was mounting scientific evidence that a second moon existed. Uh, what we seem to know is that Time is told otherwise. So one question we have is, what were the objects that these people were seeing? And I do kind of have maybe an idea. I think about that last one, the Green Crescent that was seen over New Zealand. Would you care to know what that might be? Lay it on me. There, uh, there is a phenomena uh, known as the Green Flash. Are you familiar with this? Just explain to our listeners. A lot of people have, have over the years, seen this. If you're, if you're looking out over the, the ocean... And you're seeing, for instance, at sunset, just after the sun has gone down, uh, there will be an optical phenomenon uh, in which a mirage-like effect produces uh, a, a greenish, usually, because of the, the band of the spectra, the color spectrum that's, that's most prevalent at this time, or under these circumstances, rather. But a greenish little band of light will appear over the horizon. And this is known as the green flash. And so... And you can go online. I just advise you Google that because you can find pictures of it if you've never been in the right place and right time to be able to see this. But I've got a lot of friends who actually have seen this phenomena. And so I kind of wondered if maybe that green crescent moon, if you look at the green flash, it does sometimes have almost kind of a crescent shape. So I kind of wonder if maybe that's what was being seen uh, in 1886 when they saw this, this thing out there over New Zealand. But people would go on. Uh, and continue to say that, yeah, we have seen this thing too. In fact, uh, I mentioned uh, George uh, Waltemath. He claimed he himself had actually seen this thing and went so far as to calculate the object's orbit, its motions. And he said it was, once again, too dark to reflect enough light to even become visible to the naked eye. So there were plenty of these reports along these, these lines that would continue into the 20th century in which people were trying to find a second moon, but we never were able to find it. So again, one of the questions I think we have to raise here is if we never found evidence of a second moon, could there have been objects, uh, objects that were being seen that perhaps were more transient? They could appear for a while, and then they could maybe leave Earth orbit for some reason. I don't doubt that some of these people were actually seeing things, but none of them appeared to actually be a conclusive evidence of a second moon. I think we'd know if there was a second moon by today's standards, huh? <laughs> well, the question here is, are these objects natural or artificial 
or maybe natural objects that have some kind of artificiality because of construction. Right, uh, which we might say brings us back to Kehoe because Donald Kehoe, again, the, the official military explanation had been that, well, I mean, we want to look and see if there are moonlets in Earth orbit, whether they've been there for a long time and we just didn't know about it. And, and now if we can find some technological means by which to spot these things, track them, study them, and perhaps use them, you know, let's, let's use this to our st- uh, strategic benefit. But there was that opinion. And then Kehoe, who was looking at this from the ufological angle, and with the belief that E.T. was visiting Earth, and naturally he says these are the motherships we're looking for. These are the motherships parked outside Earth's atmosphere, uh, which are sending these drones or scout ships, if you want to call them that, the saucers that guys like Kenneth Arnold have seen. And he says, we found the proof. And so he appeared uh, in the newspapers in 19, I guess, 54, uh, announcing this. And, uh, and of course, saying very loudly, as he often did, that, yeah, the saucers are here and now we've got new evidence. And that's what Kehoe seemed to believe. Well, the issue here is Kehoe did tout apparent evidence over the years. This proves the UFOs are real, and this is just another example of what that is. We've got more to come with Micah Hanks, mystery satellites, moonlets, whatever. Coming up with Gene and Micah, you're in the Paracast. listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Neighbors, I want to tell you about my favorite graphics app. It's the award-winning Graphic Converter. You know, Graphic Converter is the universal genius for photo editing on your Mac. Join over one and a half million loyal users for this Swiss Army Knife photo editing app. It gives you all you expect from a top-flight image editing app with tons of features. And most important, it's easy to use. It's also far less expensive than that other app that you can only get by subscription. You know, the one I'm talking about. What's more, you can get 20% off with your order right now. So write this down to learn about Graphic Converter. Go to www.lemkesoft.de slash gene. Let me spell that. www.lemkesoft.de slash gene. Did you know there's a new group of water contaminants with unknown health effects? These emerging contaminants lurking in your water may include prescription over-the-counter drugs and new types of herbicides and pesticides. ProPure's improved Pro1G2.0 filter meets NSF 401 standards to help reduce these emerging contaminants. To find out more, visit your authorized ProPure dealer or ProPureUSA.com. That's P-R-O-P-U-R-U-S-A.com. Now there's a proven powerful anti-inflammatory that absorbs 40 times better. Yes, Nanocurcumin Plus from One Planet Nutrition contains smaller particle size that allows absorption over 40 times better into your bloodstream. Nanocurcumin Plus may also help reduce pain and inflammation, detoxify, and help against heart disease and diabetes. Nanocurcumin Plus is now on sale at OnePlanetNutrition.com. Use promo code GCN for your special discount at OnePlanetNutrition.com, the next generation of nutritional supplementation. Looking for that edge during those intimate moments? We see many ads for enhancement, but the side effects include death. 
At GCN Team, we should change the Healthy Body Brain and Heart Pack to the Healthy Libido Pack. The brain and heart are not the only organs that require a healthy vascular system. For proper blood flow at the right moment, go to GCNTeam.com or call 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203. All right, guys, we're ready for our four-season sunroom, and Daddy's going to get a rec room with refreshments. Oh, no, we'll be sleeping under the stars. Mom, what about the one with, you know, the fun? Nice try, little bro. It's a gym, my gym. Hey, Grandma's getting her four-seasons garden room, weather tight and still like being outdoors. Maybe a living room. Oh, no, wait, a family hub. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what the budget, the season, or the climate, Four Seasons Sunrooms let you and your family enjoy the outdoors inside. Call now to hear more about these great offers from the premier manufacturer of sunrooms since 1975. More reasons for Four Seasons now. To find out more, call toll-free 800-848-6333. That's 800-848-6333. Paid non-attorney spokesperson, Adam Pulaski of the Pulaski Law Firm with Principal Office in Houston, Texas, is the attorney responsible for the content of this ad. This ad is not legal advice, and the choice of a lawyer should not be based solely upon advertisement. Services may not be available in all states. Attention Zarelto users. If you or a loved one took Zarelto and suffered a serious bleeding event, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Zarelto is a popular prescription blood thinner used to prevent blood clots and protect patients from strokes. These serious bleeding events have led to numerous cases of hospitalization and even death. Phone lines are open 24-7. Call 800-261-0937. That's 800-261-0937. This is Marie D. Jones, the author of This Book is from the Future, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Micah Hanks is with us as we progress in our study of a phenomenon that was here years ago, but what about after we started launching satellites? Did these reports of so-called moonlets or other satellites disappear? They did not. And to me, that's where this really gets perhaps the most interesting because some of the great luminaries, again, of, of you know ufology have observed these mystery objects. And again, we can't, I should point out, Gene, conclusively say that these are asteroids any more than we can really say that they were motherships or whatever, like Kehoe had, had uh, you know, theorized. I do think, though, that we do have uh, an idea of what some of the later ones were, because you've got to figure after around 1957, we're going to start seeing objects that were put in orbit by humans. And of course, we had certain failed rocket launches, which we also see the debris from these, and this might explain even some of the retrograde satellites. But you know, let's back up just a moment to, again, 1954, when Kehoe is out there. This is just after the folks down at White Sands have issued their statement. And what they do is they actually go to Clyde Tombow, Dr. Clyde Tombow, and he was the discoverer of Pluto. Many of the listeners probably know this. He was put uh, in charge of this satellite tracking project by Army Ordnance Research. It was reported in October 1955 in Popular Mechanics uh, that Tombow has, quote, closed mouth about his results. He won't say whether or not any small natural satellites have been discovered. He does say, however, that newspaper reports of 18 months ago announcing the discovery of natural satellites at 400 and 600 miles out are not correct. Now, of course, those distances are the same that were given by Kehoe 
although it wasn't clear whether they were citing incorrect figures given by the army or incorrect figures that Kehoe himself had given. But either way, he added, and I quote from the Popular Mechanics article, Tombo adds there's no connection between the search program and the reports of so-called flying saucers. So <laughs> he very much was playing the skeptic in all of this. Right, um, but Tombo later on was associated with Kehoe. Yeah, now that's a good, maybe I could ask you, do you know if Tombo ever became an advocate for belief in flying saucers? I believe he saw a UFO. He had a sighting going back in the late 1940s, 1949, according Wait, to this. Wait, had Tombo? Clyde been- Tombo was an American astronomer who discovered the planet Pluto. On August 20th, 1949, he observed a UFO that appeared as a geometrically arranged group of six to eight rectangles of light, window-like in appearance, and yellowish-green in color, which moved from northwest to southeast over La Cruces, New Mexico. Okay? Mm. So definitely, definitely, there was that connection because he had a sighting. That's fascinating. Although I seem to think that uh, there was some sort of connection that he may have also had with the uh, famous uh, Lubbock Lights incident. I may be wrong about that. I'll have to get back out to to the library here and check out once we're done. I'll have to look at uh, Ripple's book on that because I, I seem to think that Tombo came up in that chapter about the Lubbock incident. But anyway, we know now that he saw his own UFO. So that is kind of interesting. The very guy who had been tracking these so-called natural satellites later saw something that sounded uh, decidedly unlike a satellite. (laughs) Pretty interesting. So yeah, he's one of the people cited by Kehoe as evidence of serious scientists seeing UFOs. And that's an example that he used. Well, during the satellite study that he had done, of course, you know, he had said that there not only didn't appear to be any link to the flying saucers, but Tombo had also said there further wasn't any existence of any of these near-Earth asteroids. You know, the ones that people had said they were seeing were nowhere to be found. And furthermore, the ones that uh, he had been looking for didn't seem to appear during this period that he was doing this investigation. It's anyone's guess exactly what was going on here, why these things would seem to show up. I referred to them earlier as being transient but I'll, I'll tell you this, Gene, after the Army shuts this down, after Tombo comes out and says, look, we don't see anything here, uh, so we're going to sh- shut down this project, 1957 rolls around, and uh, we have Dr. Luis Corrales of Venezuela's communications ministry, and he had been observing Sputnik after it. Well, actually, it was the second one, Sputnik 2. But here's the interesting thing. So he knew what he was looking at when he saw Sputnik. And, of course, after 1957, as I noted, many people would be uh, saying, oh, come on, you know, we're, we, we can expect that there would be man-made objects they might spot, right? So Corrales was watching Sputnik 2 through a telescope when he noticed something else, which was moving east to west in a retrograde orbit above the Earth, which was obviously not Sputnik. He was looking at Sputnik, and this other object comes along. So he starts watching this, and he's really confused about what this thing is. And then we have, three years later, in August of 1960, the Grumman Aircraft Corporation photographs something like this. We have in May uh, of 1961, the following year, the Smithsonian Observatory at Cambridge, Massachusetts spots an object. They quote that the satellite was first spotted at Jupiter, Florida. An unsuspected, unpredicted bright satellite and tracking stations around the world have been asked to help track it. And despite the known objects that were being put in orbit at that time, there were these mystery objects which, again, the astronomers were saying... These don't look and behave. Uh, they, don't, they don't match the flight paths of known expected objects that we are tracking. So what are these and where do they come from? 
So yeah, we did have some of these mystery objects. Uh, coming back to your question from earlier, yeah, that actually followed the era when we were putting these things up there and had the technology to do so. What's curious here is that once we had loads of our own stuff in orbit more and more every year, this entire issue appears to have faded away, or am I wrong? Well, I, you know, it's interesting because this period, and the reason I think it became of such interest to me is because today, if there were mystery objects in orbit around Earth, you know, there was a recent Japanese operation where they were attempting to try and clean up some of the, the potentially dangerous space debris around Earth. And they were trying to get up there, and it was reported as being failed. But again, I think that it would just be incredibly difficult to try and remove uh, all or even a majority of the space debris that we have put up there, which potentially may also come crashing back down and at times could be viewed as being dangerous. The bottom line is there's a lot of stuff that we've put up there in Earth orbit. Uh, the problem, too, is that if we're looking for something that is not our own, there's a lot more, you know, a lot more noise than there is signal these days. Whereas... Presumably back in the early 50s, and this is what really interests me about it, we shouldn't have had that technology to put anything in orbit. So it seems that we must have been looking at something natural, right? Or is there another explanation? You know, one way that some may look at this is the idea of a secret space program. Walter Bosley and some of the others who have been on the show and, and talk about the idea that there may have been technologies that involved aviation and uh, even early precursors to aeronautics as we know it today, or even aerospace for that matter. Uh, that they may have been doing these kinds of things and they may somehow have exceeded what we know or had worked on the periphery of civilization as we know it. Hence, the term coined by Richard Dolan, breakaway civilization. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that that's the case, but one modern interpretation could be that, well, what if there were technologies kept secret by some clandestine group? And what if in the 50s they were up there and they were orbiting Earth? They had their own manned orbital laboratories. And what if this is what we were seeing? I mean, it, it gets very speculative, but there are different ways of looking at this. I interpret it as being that they were probably natural. Uh, as far as whether the phenomena goes away, that's still a question because, see, what this all comes back around to is this idea that there is this 13,000-year-old space probe up there of alien origin. And it has a name. It's known, of course, as the Black Knight Satellite. Although the moonlets we could talk about all day, I mean, the story that really builds off of that that became... The mythos of the Black Knight satellite is even weirder, and it involves everything from messages from space and all of this kind of stuff to Nikola Tesla. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's even more bizarre than just the search for the moonlets, but I think that it begins there, and if you want to see a continuation, the advocates, the proponents of the existence of that so-called Black Knight satellite, they would tell you, of course, it's continued today, and that's what we're dealing with. Okay, so let's go back to the history of the Black Knight satellite Without going back to what we've already looked at, again, we can, we can see that from the 1850s onward, there was an interest among astronomers to try and track various kinds of objects that they were seeing in orbit. And much as I was kind of putting the idea out that, hey, there could be a, uh, a breakaway civilization and some modern UFO enthusiasts who ascribed to that idea would view this kind of retrospectively as being, and that's what they were really seeing, not moonlets or anything, they were seeing actual spacecraft somebody was operating. I think that there had been UFO proponents over the years that looked back at these early reports from the 19th century, and they thought the same thing, but they were going more along the lines of, of thought that Kehoe would have advocated, that there was something up there circling the Earth. And see, what's interesting is we do have these instances where, for instance, we go back to uh, 1899, okay, Nikola Tesla. It was said every day that he liked to uh, monitor these emissions, these frequencies, which I think we now believe were probably radio emissions from deep space. Well, not 
that deep, really probably coming from Saturn or something along those lines. But at the time, Tesla had been of a mind to say, I th- I, you know, these could be radio transmissions from an extraterrestrial intelligence out there. And so he'd sit there, and the story goes, of course, this may be somewhat apro- apocryphal, but the story goes he would sit there and be reading the newspaper in the mornings, and he would listen to these radio transmissions as though he were listening to a radio with alien voices. Okay. Let's talk about the alien voices. After you hear these voices, with Gene and Micah, you're in The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Many medicines used to treat colds and flu contain acetaminophen, a pain reliever and fever reducer found in hundreds of over-the-counter and prescription medicines. But taking too much or more than one medication containing acetaminophen per day can damage your liver. So always read the label and don't take acetaminophen if you drink three or more alcoholic drinks every day. To learn more, visit fda.gov otcpaininfo OTC pain info. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Food and Drug Administration. Water is the single most important thing your body needs, so you want to be sure it's the best for you and your family. Since 2005, thousands have depended on Berkey Purified Water. The Berkey Guy provides the lowest priced filtration systems in every size. For incredibly delicious water now and in an emergency, get to GoBerkey.com or call 877-886-3653. 877-886-3653. GoBerkey.com. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So we progress, looking a little bit more about the issues of the Black Knight satellite. Now, before we go on, Micah Hanks, I want to ask you here. If there is a breakaway civilization, and that civilization is a little bit more advanced than we are. Wouldn't that explain certain technological mysteries, particularly around World War II and thereafter? That's one interpretation, yeah. I'm really fascinated with the idea of a breakaway civilization. I do think to an extent that there could be such a thing. I don't think perhaps quite to the extent uh, that some of the UFO-related literature would espouse. I've got a lot of friends in the community who really think that that's what's going on. And tantalizing though that notion is, I'm not so sure that we necessarily have evidence 
for it. But I'll tell you what we do have evidence of. A couple of years ago, I was in London at the London Science Museum. And uh, Beth Arzi and uh, Maria Erdnetta and I were, were walking through the museum and had, they had this great display all about the cosmonauts and the Russian space program. And they did talk about what was known as the mole and they had uh, reconstructions of portions of what was the manned orbital laboratory that they had utilized. At the time it was in service, of course, this was essentially a small scientific research station that orbited Earth the Russians used, which uh, was not, of course, publicly known like our modern International Space Station. Uh, this is what I've always thought. If the Russians could have been doing something like that. And they had their own quote-unquote secret space program that wasn't quite like anything that you hear about in the books these days about breakaway civilizations, but nonetheless was similar enough to the kind of stuff you might have read in Moonraker or one of the James Bond novels. Yeah, it only stands to reason that with our technology and our ambitions that the Americans have done things like that too. And yeah, some of this may have remained off the record. So I don't rule out that possibility that there have been technologies over the years that far exceed our own and maybe that there have been instances where we have observed things that seem really weird that might otherwise be explained if we knew of the existence of those technologies, Gene. What about a secret space program, the other theory that goes with it? Yeah, you know, again, I think that would fall into what we're talking about because it seems highly unlikely to me. You know, coming back to the early 1950s reports of strange things that were orbiting Earth, I don't know that I could say that somebody had a space program or even a spacecraft and that someone was launching these up there. I mean, I, I do think that we would probably have more knowledge of that because to a certain point, you, you kind of get to the, to the point where you have to ask the question, what would be the point of keeping all of this so secret and for so long? I mean, we've talked about going to the moon. Of course, we have the International Space Station. We have all this technology. Why would certain portions of the history of space travel be kept off the books because it's just considered too clandestine, too secret. But the Russians come out and they tell us about the manned orbital laboratory. A lot of the things that they were doing, as far as a secret space program, we can't rule out that there have been secret space technologies that either we in the Western world or in the East have utilized over the years. Uh, but I don't understand why certain aspects would be left out of the history books while others are included. That to me is just odd. What bothers me about it also is even if we had a secret space program that we were involved in, we have countries who really don't care about our best interests, and they would be only too happy to reveal something like this if they had evidence for it. Yeah, and with all the hacking and stuff that's going on these days, I mean, one could, <laughs> you got to be careful talking about that, because I mean, I mean that strictly in relation to this conversation, Gene, but it's become a very politicized argument these days. Nonetheless, one would think, though, that if there were information like that that could be obtained, which would undermine U.S. agencies and their strategy over the years, I mean, we wouldn't have to be looking for recent data, which would be considered more sensitive. You'd think that hackers would be able to find all kinds of information going back decades that would reveal any sort of a secret space program or something like that. And again, I'm not going to I'm not going to tell the hackers, so to speak, to go out there and try and find this stuff. I'm just saying that in one way or another, you would think that if there were evidence for an ongoing secret along these lines, that that would have been revealed. Unless, of course, and again, coming back to like a James Bond film kind of a theory, I was recently watching the film Spectre. If indeed there is you know, some dark, nefarious organization that operates beyond the periphery of world governments and outside of the jurisdictions and the authority of the world governments, then perhaps it could be kept off the books. But I mean, could a secret, that's the fundamental question, Gene, could that kind of a secret be that well kept and be maintained for so long? Only if they had direct interaction with existing governments for some reason yeah. and made some kind of agreement. It, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, John Alexander, 
you know, you've had him on the show. Sure. John is someone who has for years said, you know, I looked into this myself. You know, I went to the different branches of government. They are not interested in UFOs. Uh, I like John, but I, I also find that a little hard to believe. And I think that the reason why is because we have to take into consideration things like the, uh, the very simple premise of need to know information. People would always say that, uh, you know, on the first day of office, the president is sworn in and then they tell him all about what happened at Roswell and who killed Kennedy. Well, I got to tell you, as my good friend Tiffany Mack often says, you know, the, the office of president is a temp position. Although we've laughed about that, really, if you think about it, it's true. I mean, you're in that office for four years or eight if you're reelected, unless you're FDR, which backed by popular demand. But uh, you know, again, I think that we have to look at this in terms of, are you really going to reveal to a temp position employee, so to speak, all the secrets of government? I do not doubt that for purposes of defense and intelligence and secrecy, and guarding the great secrets uh, that are indeed pivotal and of potential danger to the American public and citizens around the world, that certain information is not released publicly. And that, uh, again, the highest levels of political office are also uh, not in the know about all of that information. The question is, who has that kind of information? It's, it's a very interesting but a very complex subject, which I do think that you have to take into consideration when you're looking at something like UFOs or or just, you know, government in general, uh, you know, secret societies, world powers, all this stuff. It, it would be naive to think that we have all of the data in front of us, all of the answers. And obviously, someone does seem to have more than we do for reasons that perhaps we don't understand or are not meant to understand. Also, I would think with the current administration, if they revealed something, the tweet would appear five seconds later. <laughs> yes, that's right. It would be all over Twitter and then it would be done. <laughs> oh, that's good, Gene. So I tend to think that they regard the president as the temporary occupant and they won't tell him anything unless he has the need to know. If there's no compelling reason, don't say it to anyone. Now, it may be possible that in the early days of the UFO mystery in the days of Truman, in the days of Eisenhower. Maybe they knew, but I think over the years that became less and less so, assuming there was any secret knowledge to present. I would agree. And I think that a lot of that, again, we might reference some of the historical work of Richard Dolan. It's funny because a friend and I were sitting and talking the other day and he said, you know what frustrates me about some of Richard's books from, you know, with regard to the UFOs and the national security state, he says, He's, he's documenting all this history, but he's not really giving opinions. And I'm thinking, well, wouldn't you think that's what a good historian would do? Not that you can't have opinions. I mean, I'm often criticized of the same thing, but sometimes we, when we approach ufology from a historical context, like what we're doing, looking at the moonlit thing and the idea of, again, what I think really built onto a mythos that became the Black Knight satellite, I think that it's important to understand that you have to be able to document the facts. You can't go back and rewrite history. You can give opinions on it, but sometimes you have to state the facts and tell the story as it happened. So it's not that we aren't giving opinions, Richard Dolan or myself or whoever. It's that we're, we're going back and we're kind of mining for this data and trying to put together the narrative in a non-sensational way so that the facts are what remain. And one thing I think that we can discern from that and really why Richard has taken that approach with regard to UFOs in the uh, national security state is it shows that there is a sort of a political continuum with, if you want to call it UFOs or UFO technologies or whatever else, there is this political continuum with regard to technology. Or, of course, as Eisenhower warned, the industrial military continuum or the military industrial complex, as he referred to it, in which we see that, yes, maybe early on there were U.S. presidents who really were, often with their background in military, commander-in-chief, and they had access to this sensitive information. But as time has gone on, 
I think that the acquisition and and the the keeping of that information by the military bodies rather than the political leaders that divide I think has grown and with the you know compounding of that with the intelligence community of course and the digitization of surveillance and things in, in recent years what we have seen is we've seen an intelligence uh, and military branch of government that operates almost autonomously apart from the political decision making and and I think that if there are are, are indeed UFO secrets that anyone keeps terrestrial, extraterrestrial, you know, transdimensional, whatever else. It would be kept in that upper echelon of, again, what Eisenhower warned about, that military-industrial complex. Let's go into more of this in our next segment with Micah Hanks of the Graylian Report. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Hi, Peter Vaccaro for ParanormalDate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up for free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, mysteries, ghosts, UFOs, and the afterlife, and so much more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you people seeking a viable alternative to the other dating services you can join for free by going to paranormaldate.com and if you decide you like it and want to connect with people use the code george for a substantial discount mark rawlings president of paranormaldate.com says so many people hunger to share their experiences about the paranormal the unexplainable or the afterlife and so much more and this is the source for them to meet and share that common interest so sign up for free at paranormaldate.com paranormaldate.com and use the code george if you decide to connect with someone you like why be held hostage by your wireless carrier for two years what if there were no contracts no activation fees no tracking tracing or draconian gimmicks all on america's largest 4g lte networks introducing pixwireless.com activate your sprint at&t and unlock gsm phones instantly bring your own device and make the switch today here's how call or click 1-866-205-9513 or pixwireless.com spelled p-i-x pixwireless.com Attention small business owners. Want to save money on your employee health insurance plan? Learn the little-known solution that could save thousands of dollars on your health insurance benefits and save your employees money, too. Call Health Markets for a free consultation, and one of our 3,000 local agents will show you how to make health care reform work for you. We'll design customized solutions for your business that can lower health care costs for you and your employees. We'll work directly with you to determine your needs. We search thousands of health plans from over 180 health insurance companies nationwide. You'll also find out if tax credits could save you money. Best of all, 
The service is free of charge. See why Health Markets has enrolled Americans in more than 2 million insurance policies. You don't have to wait for open enrollment to lower your cost. Call now. Find out how much you and your employees could be saving. Representatives are standing by to assist you. Call 800-930-5137. That's 800-930-5137. 800-930-5137. Taking turmeric is good, but there's a problem with it. The active ingredient in turmeric, known as curcumin, is poorly absorbed into the cells due to its large particle size. But now, One Planet Nutrition has the answer for this powerful anti-inflammatory. Nanocurcumin, a nanoparticle curcumin which absorbs over 40 times better into your bloodstream. Discover more health benefits of nanocurcumin and nanocurcumin plus now on sale at OnePlanetNutrition.com. Use promo code GCN for your special discount at OnePlanetNutrition.com. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Continuing with Micah Hanks. We started with mystery satellites, moonlets, black night satellites, what the governments of Earth may know about the secret. But if you're dealing with the military-industrial complex, if you funnel this off into private industry, so there's no government connection except for maybe a few high muckety-mucks, that's a way to give them plausible deniability. We don't know anything about it. We have no UFO project. We know nothing about it except that there was no evidence that UFOs represent national security threat. Because private industry took it over. Right. I think that a good case can be made that, again, outsourcing to private industry and private agencies over the years has allowed not only for that plausible deniability, but, I mean, sometimes there are much simpler methods of keeping people from asking too many questions that are employed. Recent example, for instance, FBI has now said that they will no longer be accepting, except for in rare circumstances, email queries for Freedom of Information Act. Here it is, the 21st century, and they're saying you have to either use snail mail or fax machines. Does anyone still have a fax machine? Please contact me if you do. Because I'm, I'm going to need that to be able to file my FOIAs. <laughs> well, I do have an electronic fax system. I pay just a few dollars a month, which is cheaper than having a separate fax line. Right. And it's an e-fax. And it's not the one most of you know about. It's a lot cheaper than that one. But that way, I have the same fax number I've had for 20 years or 25 years. And I could receive faxes. It doesn't happen very often. It happens often enough to need it. But yeah, it's strange why they would insist on doing something there with a technology that no one really needs. Well, but Gene, I mean, it's, I don't think it's that weird. I think it's pretty obvious why they would do that. What they're hoping, I don't think they're trying to cover up information. I think what they are trying to do, as other agencies already do, by the way, I mean, I think they're following in the footsteps of the CIA and other agencies that really operate very similarly, what they're hoping to do is limit the number of FOIA requests that are incoming so that they can kind of weed out all but the serious ones, the people who are willing to go to the trouble of you know, working through snail mail or using facts. But what that naturally is also going to do is it's going to reduce transparency because the ease of access is thus limited. And I think that that is really fundamentally a problem with government today that we face. With all of the technology afforded us, you would think that it would be easier for them to just to be able to put up information and not have to pay money for the paper and whatnot. They can utilize the bandwidth instead, and they can just communicate digitally almost on an exclusive level. 
backpedaling like this obviously is intended to try and reduce the number of queries. And while that might be seen as something that's beneficial or practical, it does, I think, definitely present some issue in terms of transparency. And that, I think, in terms of modern American culture and society is a problem that we have to face and take seriously. So here it's discouraging people from trying to get that information. And then even when you do make an application for it, send a request in the normal way, the way that's prescribed, they can always come back and say, well, the information is not clear enough. The query is not clear enough. You've got to change three words. And if you figure out what those three words are, maybe we will accommodate your request. Right. Yeah. It was put to me by a friend in aerospace a few years back. I wanted to try and begin inquiring about some of these large triangular UFOs, the big black triangles, as people call them. And uh, under uh, Bob Bigelow, although there's certain controversy associated with some of that, his National Institute for Discovery Science did some really good research into those back in the uh, early to mid-2000s before they disbanded. And I thought, well, I'll just try filing some FOIA requests. And uh, a friend of mine with uh, a lot more background with this sort of thing than I have, told me you'd have a hard time trying to get any information about these technologies via FOIA because, you know, Mikey, you're not going to be able to just file a request and say, tell me about the triangle craft. You have to be so specific and you have to be able to have relevant terminology. And what's really frustrating is, is friends of mine who've worked in government for years have said things like, you know, we know of certain documents that have actually been released they're no longer classified, but for them to be released to the public, you'd still have to be able to utilize very specific terminology and know what to ask for to be able to obtain those documents. So it's very frustrating. They're actually free for release if you know what to ask for, but how do you know what to ask for if you don't know what the actual terminology that uh, refers to what you may be looking for? Let's say, you know, exotic kind of aircraft or something like that. If you don't know what specifically to ask for, how are you ever going to get those documents? And if you do know... And you do use the right terminology. They can say, see, we told you it's available. You just have to ask for it. Now, I wanted to go back to something we talked about earlier. Very briefly, you brought up Nikola Tesla. And he's often connected with mystery science and mystical things. And you did raise a topic here. And I wanted to follow up on it because it's just something that seemed curious to me. Nikola Tesla and his communication with aliens. How so? When? Well, again, this would have been around the turn of the, of the last century, 1899 into the 1900s. He was observing or monitoring, we might say, radio transmissions that came from space. And what Tesla had said on a number of occasions, he had, he had kind of posited that maybe he was intercepting transmissions, radio communications from alien species. That turned out not to be the case. But the reason I bring that up in the context of this argument, first of all, Let's just say that Tesla has remained a mystery because of the, uh, the associations he may have had with various things, you know, ranging from a death ray. There have been people who have theorized he may have been responsible for the Tunguska blast of 1908. I don't think that's likely, but that's something that uh, we explored recently on the Grayling Report podcast. You know, let me just erase something that just hit me when you said mm-hmm. that. Death rays. Yeah. There was a movie back in the 1930s that you might see online somewhere with Bela Lugosi playing this mad scientist who develops kind of a death ray, the invisible ray. And I wondered here, you know what? Maybe this was loosely based on the stories about Tesla. Yeah, it's a possibility. I mean, you know, his influence in culture has been, uh, you know, very profound, uh, even though he was really kind of you know, given the short end of the stick in terms of, you know, the, the payout and the treatment uh, of, of Tesla and his inventions. And of course, at the time that he died, I mean, of course, 
there, there have been numerous FYA requests to the FBI dating back to the 50s uh, looking for information about what what Tesla's lost archives, you know, may have entailed. And I've gone to the FBI's website and read some of those and have never been able to find anything more than what we already know is that, you know, he had interest in a number of very un- unusual things, which, yes, included the idea that alien communication might be achieved in the future. Now, he wasn't right about what he was monitoring, but what does all this have to do with this conversation? What's interesting is that the proponents of the modern idea of this Black Knight satellite gene, they look at what Tesla was doing around the turn of the, the century, 1899 or so. And they were like, you know, what if he was picking up radio signals? Brilliant inventor, you know, and forward thinker that he was. What if he was picking up on something? And that was the earliest evidence we had of an ongoing phenomenon, which we began to see the continuation of in the 1950s with these mystery satellites and things. And there were other things, too, that were showing up over the years. We had in the uh, uh, 1920s, I think it was right around 1927, uh, but the experiments took place in 28 between two Scandinavian researchers, Carl Stormer and a geophysicist, or he was a geophysicist, his associate, Balthasar von der Pohl, great name, was a physicist. And he worked with the Phillips Research Labs. And they were investigating a really weird phenomenon, which to this day, this is, a, this is one of these genuine unexplainables. I'm sure there is an explanation for it, but we don't know what causes it. It's called long echo delays. Let's talk about more of this and go back to Nikola Tesla and that movie, I did, did a search for the movie The Invisible Ray, and I'll tell you something there that's interesting. We've got more to come with Micah Hanks and Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Why be held hostage by your wireless carrier for two years? What if there were no contracts, no activation fees, no tracking, tracing, or draconian gimmicks, all on America's largest 4G LTE networks? Introducing PixWireless.com. Activate your Sprint, AT&T, and unlock GSM phones instantly. Bring your own device and make the switch today. Here's how. Call or click 1-866-205-9513 or PixWireless.com, spelled P-I-X, PixWireless.com. Being self-reliant is about being prepared and to do what you need to have your own source of renewable energy. Portable Solar LLC offers the most powerful EMP-hardened solar system on the market that is transportable from place to place. And the best part? It's very affordable. Contact them at PortableSolarLLC.com or call for details at 972-575-8875. SolArc EMP-hardened solar generator energy insurance for your family or business. Call Portable Solar LLC today or go to PortableSolarLLC.com to check out their patent-pending technology. This is a life-changing message for anyone with sleep apnea who is on the go and tired of dragging around a big, bulky home CPAP device. Now there's finally a portable device that's as small as a soda can and weighs less than a pound. You can even add a battery that's as tiny as a deck of cards. It's the Transcend Mini CPAP. And if you're one of the first 100 callers, you can try Transcend risk-free for 10 days. So call now. 1-800-441-0405. Transcend is the world's first portable mini CPAP device. It gives you the freedom to sleep in total comfort anywhere you are. Our smallest and most advanced portable design ever, Transcend is so small and so light, you can fit it in your briefcase or purse to use anywhere you go. It's FAA compliant, too, so you can even sleep comfortably while flying. To guarantee your 10-day in-home trial, you must be one of the first 100 callers to call minicpap.com now. 1-800-441-0405. Again, that's 1-800-441-0405. 
Dangerous blood clot device alert. If you or a loved one had an IVC filter placed to prevent blood clots from traveling to your heart or lungs and suffered an injury, you may be entitled to substantial financial compensation. The FDA warns that IVC filters may cause serious complications, such as heart or lung damage, internal bleeding, and even death. These dangerous blood clot devices can break and the metal fragments can travel to your heart or lungs causing serious injuries. If you or a loved one suffered organ damage or other injuries from an IVC filter, you may be entitled to substantial financial compensation. Act now. Time is limited to file a claim. For a free consultation and free information, call Injury Help Desk at 800-478-1507. 800-478-1507. 800-478-1507. This is an advertisement. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. InjuryHelpDesk.com is responsible for this advertisement. Principal Office, Las Vegas, Nevada. Have you checked your Google search results lately? Search results are usually the first impression that people form of you or your business. So make sure that they create a positive impression with ReputationDefender.com. What the Internet says about you can have a big impact on your life and your livelihood, even if it's not true. Fortunately, you can now control how you look online and in online search results with ReputationDefender.com. Call 800-831-0771 now. That's 800-831-0771 for your free reputation. Reputation analysis. If you have negative material from an ex-employee, upset patient, or former client, newspaper article, legal issue, social media, or other source showing up in your search results, you can combat it with ReputationDefender.com. Our dedicated experts in patented technology can help make your online search results look their best. Call 800-831-0771 to learn more. 800-831-0771. That's 800-831-0771. Or visit ReputationDefender.com. This is Jacques Vallée, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. By the way, in case you're wondering what happened to Chris O'Brien, he's certainly feeling okay. He's recovered pretty nicely from his recent hospital visit. What happened, though, is he ran off to do a special assignment and has run really, really late. So he will not be on this episode, but he will be with us for After the Paracast, a special feature from the Paracast Plus. Let me remind you the best way, the number one numeral uno best way for you out there, neighbors, to support the Paracast is to become a subscriber to the Paracast Plus. Go to plus, P-L-U-S dot theparacast.com, plus dot theparacast.com. We offer a commercial-free version of this show, the After the Paracast podcast, and more for a low fee, weekly, monthly, annual, etc., etc., plus dot theparacast.com. Now, I briefly mentioned Connection with Nikola Tesla, a movie that came out in 1936 called The Invisible Ray, and it starred Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, a few of their pairings. And I was looking at this old photo of Tesla where he has the mustache. And the character that Boris Karloff plays in this movie has a mustache. Don't know if there is any resemblance. But what it says here is a scientist becomes murderous after discovering and being exposed to the radiation 
of a powerful new element called Radium X. It's interesting how <laughs> movies like that are inspired by possible real events. Who knows? Yeah, absolutely. Go on, please. I would find it hard to believe, in fact, that somehow uh, Tesla had not influenced those kind of science fiction films. And again, you know, as it relates to the Moonlit Mystery, Black Knight Satellite, there have been those theorists who have said, well, you know, Tesla, he may have been monitoring these radio emissions. That's really all that Tesla you know, has to do with all of this. But I will, I will add to that that, again, Tesla's influence being as profound as it is uh, has led to a lot of speculation about whether he might even be um, – in some way, in or I don't know that we could say he is involved, but it could be that certain inventions that Tesla had envisioned for the future had predicted certain UFO technologies or perhaps even influenced them. Now, I wish I had more knowledge about that. The problem is, is I've gone back and dug through every kind of back catalog edition of, of Electrical Engineer magazine, or I'm sorry, it was Electrical Experimenter magazine, uh, Popular Science, you know, l- looking for every... And a lot of them are available, if not all of them, online. But uh, scanning through all these old PDF issues and reading the actual text of these articles, I try to find these anecdotal statements that Tesla alleged, you know, he was alleged to have made where he talked about cylindrical craft and uh, aircraft that would require, he, you know, he scoffed at uh, what was taking place at Kitty Hawk out there, the Wright brothers and all that. He said, oh, you know, in the future, that's going to be seen as a very, very uh, limited mode of, of air travel. The, the aircraft of the future that I envision will be a tubular device that can just lift off straight off the ground and go straight up and it can travel at incredible speeds and come to an abrupt halt and you know really some fascinating stuff that does seem to describe later ufos these flying cigar shaped ufos but i dig through these magazines and that's what's so disappointing is it's so difficult to find the actual quotes and this is a phenomenon unto itself quotes that are misappropriated to historical figures presidents inventors like tesla you find this kind of a thing and at the end of the day you'll find that so many websites continue to use these these sometimes completely fabricated quotes that seem to tie together a number of mysteries. And I think that really, in large part, that's kind of what has happened with the Black Knight satellite. They see Tesla sitting there reading his newspaper in the morning, monitoring what he believed in the 1890s were alien transmissions from another planet. In likelihood, they weren't. I mean, they were probably radio emissions from natural sources right here within our solar system. But then we, we come forward to Carl Stormer, who I mentioned at the very end of the last segment, and uh, his associate, Vanderpoel. And they were studying these long-delayed echoes. What would happen is they'd send a radio signal, and then sometimes as much as like 14, 15 seconds later, they would get the message coming back to them in an echo, a very long-delayed echo. Um, there are a lot of theories, and I've written articles about this myself, a lot of theories that try to explain this. But by far, the most uh, novel of them, Gene, uh, really didn't come to light until about 1973, I believe. There was a Scottish science writer named Duncan Lunan, and he published a paper that uh, – and it was actually published in an academic uh, journal, and he wasn't exactly a ufologist. I mean, he was known as a science writer, but Lunan suggested that these long-delayed echoes were, in fact, due to an alien probe that might be monitoring Earth. And he later kind of retracted some of his theories, but what he had essentially said was, you know, if there's some sort of a probe up there, they may be receiving our signals and they may, as a form of communication or some other mechanism, sending these things back and the transmission versus the processing time and then the receipt of the the echoed message, this could account for some sort of an object that's up there observing the Earth. And he was very serious about this. I mean, he really thought this might be a thing. 
Uh, he was also criticized for that and later retracted some of the statements. But this is really where I think things began to come together because people were like, hold on. Now, Tesla was monitoring stuff back in you know the 1890s. And then in the 20s, we had our Scandinavian friends out there who are receiving these long-delayed echoes. And now we've got Duncan Lunan who's looking at this. And of course, you tie all that together with the objects that were being observed by Tombow and, and others in the 1950s. Well, could it be that maybe there is an alien probe circling the Earth? And you add to that the modern NASA uh, photographs that seem to show these weird objects out there floating around, uh, which generally this is where we have our best evidence of the so-called Black Knight satellite. And sure enough, people have said, you know, over the years with the accumulation of this information, there is something up there. There's, there's, a, there's actually something that's been monitoring us. And somewhere along the way, Gene, this idea that it's a 13,000-year-old satellite that was placed by extraterrestrials uh, came together as well. Um, I, I became fascinated with trying to understand how did all of this lead to this very clear narrative about this this alien vessel that was placed in Earth orbit. Um, and it's it's a very odd phenomenon in itself because the best I can discern, we can determine that with the, with the photographs, the NASA photos released, which of course, this is what's funny. People will tell you, well, you know, they're not going to show you anything real. They're going to airbrush everything out of the photos. And yet, it's the very same photos NASA releases that people who are the advocates will go to and they'll look for these so-called Black Knight satellites or whatever else in the photos that are supposed to be airbrushed by NASA. <laughs> you know, again, it's very convenient that when people want to spot something, they'll find it. And if they can't find what they're looking for, they'll say that, well, because NASA airbrushes it. The object that's often referred to in the NASA photographs available online over the last few years, uh, usually probably photos that were taken from one of the STS missions, it's probably actually what's what's called a, a thermal blanket or a heat blanket uh, that was drifting apart from the space shuttle. Or in some recent instances, there, there are probably similar situations where debris may have been photographed from the space station, whatever else. Against speaking with aerospace experts, I've had time and time again, people look at the objects that are pointed out by theorists as the Black Knight satellite. And I'll say, you know, do you, can you identify this? And they say, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you exactly what that looks like. <laughs> The further problem is that uh, those who are more skeptical, uh, well, those who I guess we might say are conspiracy-minded, and I think, you know, again, many who listen to this show probably are, and I am to a degree too, so I'm not trying to marginalize them, but I'm going to say that there are certain people who, if any person in authority says, no, we, we know what that is. I mean, that's a heat blanket. I mean, look, you know, here's this, this, and this. We tend to be very critical of opinions given to us from officialdom because, well, of course, but that's what they want us to believe, Right. Which further compounds the problem. I think the officials sometimes encourage that impression. We don't believe the government anymore. I often said that if Obama, during his presidency, trotted out E.T. and said, okay, we are going to admit now that we've been visited by extraterrestrials and here is E.T. and they're going to communicate with you, most people would think it's an actor made up. <laughs> People would yeah. not believe what he says, and I think that's true with any recent government leader. George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, I don't know, but certainly Bush, Obama, and Trump be the same thing. We've got more to come, talking about weird things out there, and more with Micah Hanks of the Graylian Report. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. for listening to GCN. 
Visit GCNlive.com today. Neighbors, I want to tell you about my favorite graphics app. It's the award-winning Graphic Converter. You know, Graphic Converter is the universal genius for photo editing on your Mac. Join over one and a half million loyal users for this Swiss Army Knife photo editing app. It gives you all you expect from a top-flight image editing app with tons of features, and most important, it's easy to use. It's also far less expensive than that other app that you can only get by subscription. You know, the one I'm talking about. What's more, you can get 20% off with your order right now. So write this down to learn about Graphic Converter. Go to www.lemkesoft.de slash gene. Let me spell that. www.lemkesoft.de slash gene. You've been hearing Dr. Wallach talking about 90 essential nutrients, keeping the body healthy. GCNteam.com now has Beyond Tangy Tangerine Tablets. 60 plant-derived minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, packed in a powerful tablet. But that's not it. 160,000 auric points, a knockout punch to free radicals. Call 877-878-4203 or go to GCNteam.com. That's 877-878-4203. Lifetime Grazed 100% grass-fed beef has the health benefits you seek. When compared to conventional beef, it offers good fats while virtually eliminating the bad. That's the result of cattle who never eat grain, ever. Rich in antioxidants, including vitamin E, C, beta-carotene, and CLA. No artificial hormones, antibiotics, or other drugs. For all our fresh, non-cooked products with only 100% grass-fed beef, go to MidasResources.com. Use voucher code GCN to get 30% off your order. MidasResources.com or find us on Facebook. In these uncertain times, it makes sense to have a sustainable backup method to cook food and boil water. If your current plan includes using a fuel-burning stove or cooking over an open fire, then there's a much better way. The Miniman Rocket Stove is a biomass-burning cooking stove that only requires small quantities of sticks and twigs for fuel. The Miniman Stove is easy to use, smokeless, portable, powerful, and sustainable. For the finest in survival cooking stoves and fire starters made right here in the USA, go to MinutemanStove.com. That's MinutemanStove.com. As a doctor, I see patients every day who are losing their vision and independence to age-related macular degeneration, also known as AMD. It's the leading cause of blindness in adults 55 and older. Some of us are at greater risk for AMD. If you have blurry vision or blind spots, they can be symptoms of AMD. If left untreated, it can lead to blindness. The good news? With early detection, AMD can be managed with effective clinically approved treatments that can reduce or even reverse some vision loss. Learning that you have AMD can be scary, but there's hope and help. The Foundation Fighting Blindness is researching and developing treatments and cures for AMD. To get your free AMD information packet, contact the Foundation Fighting Blindness today at 1-800-BLINDNESS. That's 1-800-BLINDNESS. Join the fight against AMD, because together there is a cure in sight. This is Dan Pilla. Do you owe the IRS money you can't pay? Are tax debts crippling you? I've defended people from the IRS for over 30 years. I've helped thousands and I can help you too. I wrote the book on IRS settlement and I'm telling you, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX to finally get free of IRS debt. With the IRS's new programs, there's never been a better time to solve your problem. Call 800-34-NO-TAX. 
That's 800-34-NO-TAX or my website, danpilla.com. Hi, this is Joshua P. Warren, author of The Poor Man's Paranormal, and you're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. An entertaining discussion looking at interesting mysteries. What's going on out there? What's happening? What does the government know about it? Are we being visited by E.T.? Is it something left here from an old civilization? And that's an interesting thing here. Say we did have something that was put into orbit 13,000 years ago. Would it be necessarily from an alien civilization or an advanced civilization on Earth that no longer exists? Gene, you could take it one step further and you could say, what if in order to monitor the rate of progression of humans since ancient times, uh, we from the future travel back and we put the thing there ourselves, 13, you know, 13,000 years prior to the present, but we may not actually get to the point technologically where we have uh, the device in question uh, for another, who knows, you know, 5,000 years. And so we travel back and we put it there. I mean, again, this, you can see where the, the conversation very gradually begins to trickle over into, I think, science fiction, but I also think that sometimes a little abstract thinking can be good for the mind and certainly good for the soul. And I'll also point out a little Fortean tie-in here. Uh, going back to June 1961, I'm a collector of old magazines and things, and I've got a lot of great old fate magazines, um, some of which have been given to me by Phyllis Galdi, but also some that I've collected and inherited from people over the years. And in the June 1961 issue, there was an, a pretty neat article about these mystery satellites that had been written by Harlan Wilson. 1961 is an interesting year because that was the same year, of course, that we had a young astronomer with the French Space Committee named Jacques Vallée. He'd been among the staff and he'd observed a, an unusual retrograde satellite, he and a number of the other staff members. And uh, they were really excited by it. And they thought that it was, again, they actually thought this might be an asteroid that had entered Earth's um, uh, gravitational pull and somehow had been uh, able to enter an orbit rather than coming crashing down. And he was amazed when he saw his uh, superiors take the tape and they basically, you know, whacked it, as they would say. And this is part of what got Valet interested in UFOs to begin with. But he in likelihood observed one of these things, too. So that same year, there was an article in Fate magazine in June by Harlan Wilson. And uh, he had talked about, again, these various appearances of this, what was often referred to as a retrograde satellite. And I, I'll tell you this. I suspect, in fact, there's satellite orbital data and also launch records available online. I think spacetracker.org is one website that we've used to look for this kind of thing in the past. But it seems pretty evident that probably it was an early rocket launch that failed, which caused one of the uh, apparatus to actually enter a retrograde orbit. And I think that right around the 1960-1961 period, and Time Magazine even reported on this, and I can find the quotes here someplace, but... I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that the retrograde object that was seen around that time was one of ours. Uh, it, and what's funny is digging into that initial mystery and, frankly, trying to find out what it was that Valet may have seen back in 61, that's what kind of turned me on to these earlier reports, which prior to that I didn't know existed. So Harlan Wilson wrote about him in Fate magazine that year, and he quoted a Stanford-based Australian radio astronomer named uh, Ronald H. Bracewell. And Bracewell said something very interesting, which, again, I think also may have contributed to that later supposition that, hey, what if we had an alien probe up there? And he said, and I quote, if a superior civil, uh, civilization 
really wanted to pick up signals, it would do much better to send an interstellar probe to the vicinity of a star being investigated. Such a civilization would even send a spray of probes, maybe aimed at 1,000 likely stars. The probes would be programmed to rebroadcast any radio transmission they might hear. So for all we know, what Bracewell had to say there may have even influenced Duncan Lunan in the 1970s and certainly the ongoing mythos of the Black Knight satellite that continues today. There you go. But how does any of this at all circle back to the UFO mystery, or does it? Or are these all red herrings that just kind of showed up? Well, that would be my opinion, I think, Gene, that, uh, again, you know, I, I try to be careful about you know, saying and conclusively now we can explain this because as you and I well know, I think there are a lot of people who identify as the UFO debunkers um, where they will, they will unravel something and they will find a, a more likely narrative, which I think maybe as it relates to the mystery moonlets, you know, we, we kind of outlined that. We've looked at some of the science, we've looked at some of the history, and we've looked at the way that speculation is built onto the modern Black Knight satellite notion. What does it have to do with UFOs? I think the problem is, is that people will often build these speculative narratives and then they'll say, and therefore aliens, you know, or they will, or they will use this speculation to inform what they think the likely possibilities are as it relates to UFO phenomena. Um, I see often the same kind of thing happening with abduction. People will describe abduction experiences, which may or may not have anything to do with a actual landed UFO craft. I mean, people claim that they're visited in their bedrooms by light beings and all these kinds of things. And I've been told these stories by people over the years. The point is not to try and say that they're all crazy by any means. The point is to say, but what does that necessarily have to do with UFOs? And you, you begin to see over the years that there are a lot of things that I think that very, you know, very committed researchers like Kehoe, uh, they were very serious about what they did and what they were trying to learn, but I think that unfortunately, by not being careful enough with the information, certain data becomes ingrained within the ufological mythos, but it may not necessarily have anything to do with it. I think that the moonlets are a mystery nonetheless and remain as such. And again, I mean, we've got a lot of little near-Earth asteroids that actually have entered an, an orbit around Earth of some kind. We've 3753 uh, Krutne. Uh, we had another one that was titled uh, 2002 AA29, and more recently, I mentioned in April of uh, last year, uh, 2016 HO3 was an asteroid. Again, it's w way too far out there to actually be a moon because it shares an orbit with the sun, but technically it also does orbit Earth, and thereby it is a moonlet. We now know that these things exist. That, to me, is a, a, a fascinating mystery, but it's not necessarily one that is ufological. Uh, and, it, and I think that by studying these things and really trying to understand what they are and why they're different from UFOs, what that does is it's like chipping away the excess stone to reveal the statue beneath. Eventually, I think there's going to be a statue of ufology we may be able to understand, but we've got to chip away the excess stone first. Well, it's certainly interesting to look at all these side mysteries that occurred with the UFO field. I mean, in different ways, there were all sorts of theories in the 50s, that UFOs were not necessarily from other star systems, but planets in our own solar system. And as we learned more about what happens in our own solar system, those theories fell by the wayside. So instead of having flying saucers from Mars, for example, well, maybe it's possible that it was colonized by individuals beings from other star systems they went to mars they went to the moon they set up bases and they visit us but there are no longer the possibility that we have native et on those planets that really changed 
I mean, Keogh in his early days was talking about the Martian canals even. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that Tesla also had suspected maybe that those radio transmissions he was uh, monitoring, if alien, I think he even, even Tesla had, again, it wasn't unusual to hear that kind of thing uh, in the late 19th century. But yeah, he certainly thought that maybe Mars was somehow connected with all of that. Yeah, that's how things have changed. So much so. Yeah, so much so that we no longer quite think of that in that sense. Our theories about UFOs. Do you think, though, and this takes us to the overall architecture here of our discussion, with all these little side mysteries, have we learned anything more about UFOs since the 1950s? What do we know that's different? Well, you know, Ruppelt, at the end of his book, uh, which, again, I, I recommend everybody read, if you really want to understand, I think, that, that, that very era, in fact, where these, uh, you know, these kind of mystery satellites were being observed. And this was from a guy who was really at the forefront of really digging into this because the Air Force had put him in charge of it. <laughs> uh, well, there's also that conspiracy theory, Gene, that uh, Project Blue Book was just kind of like a, a puppet agency and that the real architects of Blue Book had been the CIA. I think that April, you know, Jim and Coral Lorenzen had, had put forward that idea that the CIA were really the ones behind the, the UFO study group all along and that, you know, Project Blue Book was a, a red herring altogether. Uh, I still think we got some pretty good data from Project Blue Book. The problem is that in the years that followed toward the end of the program, it, was, it became increasingly evident that... Uh, that the Blue Book, uh, the researchers and the research that was being carried out seemed to be aimed at discrediting and playing down UFOs. I think they began to get really bored with it and tired of spending taxpayer money on it. And then the Colorado University UFO Project was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. Um, but again, have we learned anything? Ruppelt had said at the end of his book, you know, I'm, I'm confident that in the coming years we'll have an answer to the UFO phenomena, and yet we don't. And so the modern skeptic mind looks at this and says, well, we have no answers, and therefore, there's nothing to see here. And then the hopeful believer says, well, but of course there's something to see here. How can you possibly ignore it? Now, the problem is, is I think that either of these attitudes can be fairly ideological. I like to advocate a certain centrism when it comes to looking at this subject and trying to understand UFOs because, you know, as soon as you become ideological, somebody asked me, they said, you know, what do you think is the best way to be a modern skeptic? Let's continue with this and Micah Hanks. More to come with Gene and Micah. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items and entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast Jumbo tote bag, all sorts of T-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour. 
We use cell phones against our heads every day. But now, a landmark U.S. government study confirms increased health risks from exposure to EMF radiation emitted from these devices. The time to protect yourself is now. The solution is Defender Shield. Proudly made in the USA, Defender Shield blocks virtually 100% of EMF radiation emitted from cell phones, tablets, and laptops. Buy now at DefenderShield.com. Use discount code DEFENDER for 10% off. DefenderShield.com, the worldwide leader in EMF radiation protection. Paid non-attorney spokesperson Adam Pulaski of the Pulaski Law Firm with principal office in Houston, Texas is the attorney responsible for the content of this ad. This ad is not legal advice and the choice of a lawyer should not be based solely upon advertisement. Services may not be available in all states. Attention Zarelto users. If you or a loved one took Zarelto and suffered a serious bleeding event, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Zarelto is a popular prescription blood thinner used to prevent blood clots and protect patients from strokes. These serious bleeding events have led to numerous cases of hospitalization and even death. Phone lines are open 24-7. Call 800-261-0937. That's 800-261-0937. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. So, we continue with Micah Hanks exploring the strange, the unknown about UFOs, Moonlit's second moon, mystery satellites, and more. Micah, continue, please. Well, we look at, I mean, all of the range of phenomena we've discussed over the course of this conversation. We could, Gene, go back to previous conversations you and I have had over the years on the show. And uh, the, the question to me at the end of the day is, how much of what we're talking about here has to do with actual UFOs? Now, again, these moonlets, presumably, that's what these things were back in the 1950s that were being observed. They were unidentified. And although maybe not flying, they were unidentified orbiting objects, so UOOs, but that just doesn't have the ring that UFOs does. Either way, it was unexplained aerial phenomena, and it certainly does fall into that category of strange things we observe in the skies. But trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak, I mean, we can look at this, and I think that there is a case to be made that we know more now than we did decades ago, and thereby some of this phenomena is explainable. The problem is people use the outdated information from decades ago, and sometimes more than a century ago, in the case of what Tesla believed he was monitoring there in his laboratory, and we see that they build this onto a narrative that may be more speculation and myth like the Black Knight satellite rather than actual fact. And of course, there's still people who debate that with me and have, have argued, well, you know, what you're describing here about the Black Knight satellite and all these theories about what well, this thing, this one presumably may actually be, it doesn't fit all the criteria. I have people who get angry with me when, when I cite the research from military sources and from scientific literature, but I don't talk about uh, various you know, more fringy, I guess, kind of uh, interpretation. If I leave out, for instance, the the theory that I think that the, the, the whole thing about the 13,000-year-old satellite had something to do, memory serves, uh, with, you know, a hypothetical translation of some sort of a radio message that, again, this dated back decades and decades ago. I didn't include that in some of the writing I've done on the, the origins of the Black Knight satellite mystery because, to me, it wasn't very good information. And I've had people write to me and say, you left this out, by the way. <laughs> I often have to reply and say, thank you for pointing that out. But you know, I'm not going to use incredible data in support of what I hope will be a very credible argument about this, this study. So maybe we could, you know, at, at this point, kind of move along to looking at, well, what then does constitute real, what you'd call real UFO phenomena, if this doesn't. Uh, I had a researcher 
just a couple of years ago tell me that he thought that the abduction phenomena was the most important aspect of the broader UFO uh, problem and how we're going to understand this. And I'm thinking, but then again, is UFO abduction something that we can say is always uh, associated with UFO observations? I mean, how many times do you hear about people who have the nighttime experience where they're surrounded by beings or something like this and someone awakens into this kind of an experience, but they have no recollection of seeing a UFO? Uh, many people who co- say that they have had these experiences and may even have had ongoing encounters like this, they also are people who may never have ever seen a UFO in their lives. And I recall Whitley Strieber and others over the years even doubting whether what they were experiencing was necessarily something ufological, if not something completely apart from the so-called UFO mystery. So again, I think that you know, if, we're, if what we're really aiming to do is study UFOs, we benefit from studying things which, through proper critical analysis, may end up at the end of the day not being the UFOs we were looking at, because what that does, again, is that helps us separate uh, the non-ufological things from what really may be the best evidence that helps us move forward, which many would argue after decades and decades, you know, we still don't have enough of to make a good, solid case for UFOs. So that's one of the problems we face. At what point do we say we either have not enough evidence or we have not accumulated enough, and therefore we should cease study? There were some who would say that by the 1960s, that was the case. I mean, is that the case today? I do believe that the anecdotal evidence stands for something. There are certain videos and photographs I've seen over the years that are good. But, you know, talking with David Marler a few months back, he had mentioned that no photo in this digital era is ever going to be good enough. So, I mean, if we can't even rely on decent photographs of these things, what good evidence do we have uh, that helps us substantiate the claim for UFOs and their existence? How do you know anymore? That is really difficult to say. Now, one thing that has been done that helps us separate the cases, the real ones and the ones not so real, things like Kevin Randall has been doing where he's been going back into older cases, trying to look at them and re-verify the information. This is why he disbelieves a lot about Roswell. Not that nothing happened there, but we don't have the evidence of space beings, the evidence that it's a crashed spaceship, All that stuff sort of fades away into, well, something happened. We have no idea what it was. And probably, unless there's some secret information somewhere that we discover, we'll never solve it. It's one of those insolubles, which sounds almost like something you mix with water. But it's like that. He's looking at Sicaro, New Mexico, which I think holds up a lot better. So that's an important thing, that we've existed for so long on these older cases, dependent on them as being the linchpins of UFO reality, and now we're realizing, you know what? Maybe not so. Right. Yeah. With with the again the discussion of the Black Knight satellite and the moonlets, you might even look at you know the information I'm presenting in relation to that. You might look at that as being similar to what Kevin Randall has done. By the way, a researcher that I have so much respect for. Randall's a really uh, intelligent guy, and I haven't. Uh, I often do listen when I'm traveling, and I do travel often. Uh, so I, I do listen to the Paracast uh, when when I'm on the road. I haven't gotten to that episode yet, and I really want to listen to that. And people, many would say, well, but isn't he talking about Roswell? Uh, we, didn't you guys say you were going to close the book, and now you've got Micah Hanks on there talking about it? But I'll say this, <laughs> and then I promise this will be, at least for me, the final addenda you, you'll get about Roswell. It is important to look back with the acquisition of new information or the reinterpretation of old information. And it is important to try and, again, look at these things critically and say, can we close the book on this? I often say this. You also had Jeffrey Meldrum on your show recently, another fascinating interview. He's a proponent of belief in the so-called Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film. And I want to tie this in with ufology, but here's what I want to say about that film. 
people continue to argue about, is it real or is it not? Is it the best evidence or is it nothing? And I say, leave it alone, let it be, and let's keep looking for good evidence. And when people ask why, I say, the Patterson-Gimlin footage, as good as it may look, it has not succeeded in convincing the scientific community that a physical, flesh and blood, biological creature, some you know, relic hominid, exists. That footage obviously is incapable of providing the smoking gun. It is not the proof we're looking for because it has remained incapable of convincing the scientific establishment. So we need, therefore, to find better evidence. And so you could say with Roswell, too, it was long viewed as being one of the best UFO cases of all time. And on further reflection and inquiry over the, the most recent uh, you know, series of books that have been written on this and over the last few years, uh, the critical analysis seems to indicate that it is less than it was once probably thought to be. And so why is it important for someone like Kevin Randall to, again, spend all this time disproving what was once the best UFO case? If it's not the best case, why worry about it? Well, if we can at very least say that it's not the best UFO case and it's time to move on, maybe then people will actually see the importance of not emphasizing Roswell. And yet there are continuously books written about it, you know, festivals planned around it. That's okay, but let's differentiate between the UFO industry and the actual research, which is looking ahead at trying to find that good evidence, you know, whether that be some piece of film or something else or some, uh, again, hopefully physical evidence that would satisfy the chemist or the physicist out there. That seems to be really what we're lacking in the UFO narrative today, and uh, which at times, Gene, has brought me back around to a more skeptical perspective on things. But I'll tell you that what I can't rule out uh, is that, again, when I talk to people who say the thing was disc-shaped, I saw it with four other people. Here are their information. Here's it. Here are their names. You can call them. You can talk to them. We. This is what we saw. We all saw this. Please don't share our information. This is just for your benefit. You know, if you, we we thought this might be useful to you. And when you have these kind of circumstances where you have no physical evidence, but somebody who says, or a group of someone's who say that they've seen something, and and yet they don't seem to be trying to, you know, get, get attention or fame or notoriety from that. You know, I mean, I realize that that anecdotal data is not going to prove at the end of the day that UFOs, whatever they may be, that they exist. And we can leave that interpretation for a later time. At this moment in time, all we really need to work, I think, focus on is working at trying to determine whether there is a phenomena or perhaps several phenomena that constitute broader ufology and belief in them. If we can define that and we can say, yes, there is something that exists. Let's go on to more of this, the fundamentals of the UFO mystery. And more with Micah Hanks of the Graylian Report. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Pyrocast. Neighbors, I want to tell you about my favorite graphics app. It's the award-winning Graphic Converter. You know, Graphic Converter is the universal genius for photo editing on your Mac. Join over one and a half million loyal users for this Swiss Army Knife photo editing app. It gives you all you expect from a top-flight image editing app with tons of features, and most important, it's easy to use. It's also far less expensive than that other app that you can only get by subscription. You know, the one I'm talking about. What's more, you can get 20% off with your order right now. So write this down to learn about Graphic Converter. Go to www.lemkesoft.de slash gene. Let me spell that. 
www.lemkesoft.de slash gene. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I would wake up with a sore neck, maybe a headache, or feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. When I invented my pillow, I wanted it to where you could move the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep REM sleep faster and you will stay there longer. It's not about how much time we spend in bed, it's about how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all of my own manufacturing right here in the United States. I have a 10-year warranty. You can wash and dry my pillow, and I give you a 60-day money-back guarantee so you have nothing to lose. And here's my best offer ever. You can buy one of my pillows and get one absolutely free. Go to MyPillow.com or call 800-870-0305 and use promo code GCN. That's MyPillow.com or 800-870-0305 with promo code GCN. Are you looking to become more self-sufficient? Then you need to have your own energy source. The Solark EMP hardened generator is automatic, maintenance-free, and reduces your monthly electric bill. You can also take it off-grid when you go camping. Contact PortableSolarLLC.com or call for details at 972-575-8875 today. Portable Solar LLC gives you everything you need to start using solar energy in less than one hour. Solark EMP hardened solar generator energy insurance. For your family or business, call Portable Solar LLC today. Hi there, I'm Bob Eubanks. You know, as part of Hollywood for a long time, I've seen my fair share of celebrities get in trouble with the IRS. Well, there's one name I trust, the Tax Defense Group. They're the most trusted name in tax. So if you owe more than $10,000 to the IRS, you really need to call my friends at the Tax Defense Group. Ignoring the IRS is not the solution. They can garnish your paycheck, levy your bank accounts, seize your home or business. But the Tax Defense Group could put a stop to all of that and tailor a program that would reduce your tax debt to pennies on the dollar. you got to love that. So don't just take my word for it. Call them. Find out for yourself. They offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee. And they're open 24 hours a day because they know that tax debt doesn't sleep either. Call now for your free and confidential tax analysis from the most trusted name in tax. Call 800-361-6907. 800-361-6907. Now's the time to refresh your home and save at Lumber Liquidator's Spring Flooring Kickoff Sale. Our stores are packed with the latest spring trends like modern waterproof wood-look flooring. It's up to 34% off or choose from more than 200 styles of pre-finished hardwood from $149. Get deals on over 55 varieties of bamboo from $159. More from $0.59 cents and special financing. Hurry, the Spring Flooring Kickoff Sale's going on now. Visit LumberLiquidators.com to find a store near you today. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So it appears that Chris O'Brien, who was on special assignment, wasn't able to get back in time for our session with Micah Hanksy. Really sorry that he couldn't get here. But we're talking about here not just old mysteries related to UFOs that we kind of sort of don't talk about anymore. We're talking about the fundamentals, which is, is there enough out there now to say 
there is a UFO mystery, that something is happening we cannot understand, and how do we figure it out? And what's been troublesome to me, and I've written some columns about this recently, is that most UFO research organizations or UFO so-called research organizations are in the business of collecting sightings, and they publish those sightings. Oh, golly gee whiz, look at this sighting, look at this abduction. Okay, what's going on? Well, we all assume it's spaceships, therefore let's wait for the government to tell us. And if the government doesn't tell us, we can at least use them as an excuse. Well, if the government doesn't tell us what UFOs are, we can't find out. They have the secret and we've got to persuade them. If we can't persuade them, well, maybe the President of the United States will tell us. But no, the President never tells us. We don't have Hillary Clinton who promised to look into it, not that it means anything. The guy in there now, I don't think he's ever been asked that question. So if he's ever asked, I guess he'll give us an answer. Or maybe he'll blame it on Clinton. Or blame it on the fake news media. I don't know. I don't want to get into politics. I have no idea what kind of answer you'd get if that question was even asked. But we can't pawn this off to somebody. We can't blame somebody else for the fact that loads of people around the world have seen things they do not understand. How do we get back to figuring out what they did see? I think Kevin Randall does one thing that's good, which is to take the stuff that we assume to be genuine, give it another look, and if it passes muster, well, that's another piece of data. But how do we interpret that data? Yeah, at the end of the day, that's an important question. Uh, I'll tell you what's also important, and we don't have to get into politics just to bring up the fake news thing. There was a recent report. It's slipping my mind which uh, news agency carried this. But there was a skeptic uh, who was quoted uh, about the origins of fake news. And what had been said in the article had been that fake news began in the 1950s and 60s with civilian UFO groups, which were disseminating bad information about you know, UFO landings and alleged alien contact, close encounters and things, and that the media would run with this and report this, you know, namely in the tabloids, but occasionally more venerable and reliable news sources would still pick up on these fake news stories, so saith the skeptic. You know, I find that a very odd argument because, I mean, if you look at the history of American journalism, Gene, we can go all the way back and we can see that, again, in the, in the age of Nikola Tesla or much earlier, I mean, Sam Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, good friend of Tesla's, had actually, on record, authored newspaper hoaxes himself. Now, he would often do that because he was trying to make a political point. Now, there was a California company one time that was cooking their books, and basically a lot of investors had lost their money, and it had a lot of negative repercussions. He wanted to attack companies that would cook their books like that and do unscrupulous things with other people's money. And so he wrote this entire hoax about a man who'd lost all his fortune investing in one of these California companies, murders his family, slits his own throat, and rides into the nearest town with his nearly severed head hanging off his body as he rides on horseback. I mean, it was an intentionally gruesome story that Mark Twain completely fabricated as political commentary to attack these companies and show the negative repercussions of their misuse of other people's money. So the point is, is that you also had what were called the Anandas, kind of an esoteric term, but these were the liars clubs of the day. And you had groups of people who would sit around, you know, drink whiskey, play cards, and try and cook up stories that the local dailies, the newspapers, would carry. So fake news is by no means something that we can blame APRO or the other civilian UFO groups of the golden age of ufology. We can't blame them for fake news. I'm sorry. Uh, that is a fundamental untruth, and that is a misunderstanding of the way that the media has often employed, and some writers doing it for virtuous reasons, but nonetheless, that media in America has involved fake news stories for more than a century. 
But what that does show us is that if people are willing to try and pin this on the UFO community, I think that it says a lot about the broader mistrust of UFO advocates, especially by modern skeptics. I was revisiting something interesting today, Gene, that you'd appreciate. It was a debate on Nightline from back in the day. You, you may have seen this, I mean, when it actually aired, but it was Stanton Friedman and Philip J. Class debating the UFO subject on Nightline. Boy, imagine if you could have that kind of a, a you know, television show these days. I mean, everything's reality TV. Uh, I would love to see some good, you know, put Kevin Randall in a good skeptic, you know, toe-to-toe and have him on Nightline today. You'd, you'd just never see that today. <laughs> but uh, in this debate, it's very interesting because you have Philip Class, who often would, and he said this about virtually everyone that he uh, attacked, he would dig up things about their criminal record. He would dig up things that would paint this individual, the UFO, the alleged UFO witness or a captive, abductee, experience, or whatever you want to call them. He would dig up things that would cast them in a negative light, which may or may not have anything directly in relation to do with the UFO experience that they had. I think that that kind of character assassination is something that we've often seen. Again, it's fine to be skeptical, but I think that when you're a professional debunker who utilizes those kinds of ta- tactics to play debate team and construct a debate and an argument around things that are tangent to the experience the person supposedly had, we begin to see problems. You pair that with an ideology where if 99% of these UFO sightings can be explained, then why not 100? And thereby, we're just going to presuppose that they're all bunk, and we're going to, no matter what conclusion we come to, it's always going to be in favor of the idea that no UFOs exist. When you think about these things, and then you look at the way that now in this era of fake news, we can blame the UFO community essentially for this modern phenomenon. <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost absurd. Well, yeah, but you can look back at fake news back into the 19th century when newspapers would publish stories to get circulation and maybe advertising, although maybe the 1897 airships sometimes. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting one because, see, I'm of the mind, I am interested. I am interested. Some of the, some of the 1890s airship newspaper articles and items, they've interested me. There was a historian named Timothy Parrott who wrote a book. It's kind of hard to get a hold of, and you might be able to find copies online. The only way I obtained one um, was that I'd written an article where I referenced this guy and mentioned I'd like to get a copy of this book. And he uh, found my article and wrote to me and said, if you'd still like a copy, I've got a few. And so I PayPal'd him the money immediately and got my copy and sat and read it in one sitting the night it arrived. But it's uh, a story all about uh, the alleged 1897 airship mystery. And uh, with with specific interest in this inventor from Sacramento who purportedly had been involved in the uh, construction. Charles uh, uh, Abbott Smith, I believe, had been the name of the inventor. Uh, This book tells more about his life. This, you know, Parrott was a historian who was chronicling everything he could find about this Charles Smith character. But at the end of the book, uh, there's some very interesting commentary about these airships. Now, I do think that the majority, at very least, if not all, of the 1890s articles probably were newspaper hoaxes and that there were many of them uh, that were you know being circulated, different varieties of stories that appeared in different newspapers and things. You do have the occasional one-off, though, where something weird turns up, like there was a, a Texas-based uh, newspaper that carried a story about a rancher who goes out into his field at night and sees this craft and this bright light emanating from it, and there's a man walking away from it, and the guy says, who are you? And he's wielding a gun and everything, the rancher, and the man says, Never mind my name right now. Call it Smith. <laughs> I mean, he, he actually uses the exact same name of the later alleged airship inventor. And hey, we've got more to come about this. Airships we're into. And more with Micah Hanks of the Graylian Report. 
With Gene and Micah, you're in the Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. The answer to being in control of your own health care is freedom from insurance. Become part of a group of self-pay patients that come together to share in each other's medical expenses. Individual share amounts begin at $107 a month and $347 for families. Choose from three health sharing programs. Holistic treatments may be eligible for sharing. See guidelines. Discount programs available for dental, vision, and pharmacy. Go to libertyoncall.org. That's libertyoncall.org. Paid non-attorney spokesperson Adam Pulaski of the Pulaski Law Firm with principal office in Houston, Texas is the attorney responsible for the content of this ad. This ad is not legal advice and the choice of a lawyer should not be based solely upon advertisement. Services may not be available in all states. Attention Zarelto users. If you or a loved one took Zarelto and suffered a serious bleeding event, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Zarelto is a popular prescription blood thinner used to prevent blood clots and protect patients from strokes. These serious bleeding events have led to numerous cases of hospitalization and even death. Phone lines are open 24-7. Call 800-261-0937. That's 800-261-0937. Honey, what is that in your CPAP mask? Oh, that's just my mold collection. Oh, gross. And what is that? What, that bacteria colony right there? Yeah, cool, huh? Okay, CPAP users, admit it. You're not always as careful about cleaning your system as you should be. Unfortunately, a dirty mask and hose can make you sick. Respiratory infections, allergy attacks, and more. But now there's an easy way to protect yourself. SoClean.com has released the world's first and only automated CPAP cleaner and sanitizer. It kills 99.9% of CPAP germs in minutes. For a limited time, you can try it risk-free for 30 days. Just call 1-800-944-1065. SoClean is hands-free. Just pop in your mask, close the lid, and presto, your CPAP comes out clean and fresh in minutes. Don't let germs wreak havoc on your health. Call in the next 10 minutes for your risk-free trial. 1-800-944-1065. That's 1-800-944-1065. All right, guys. We're ready for our four-season sunroom, and Daddy's going to get a rec room with refreshments. Oh, no. We'll be sleeping under the stars. Mom, what about the one with, you know, the fun? Nice try, little bro. It's a gym. My gym. Hey. Grandma's getting her Four Seasons garden room. Weather tight and still like being outdoors. Maybe a living room. Oh, no, wait. A family hub. Yeah! No matter what the budget, the season, or the climate, Four Seasons Sunrooms let you and your family enjoy the outdoors inside. Call now to hear more about these great offers from the premier manufacturer of sunrooms since 1975. More reasons for four seasons now to find out more call toll free 800-848-6333 that's 800-848-6333 is negative content or comments on the web affecting your personal or professional reputation unfavorable comments embarrassing pictures videos legal documents and negative articles can ruin your personal life your career or your business it happens a lot and it's just not fair 
But what can you do? ReputationDefender.com can help protect your good name. Get a free consultation now. Call 800-831-0771. That's 800-831-0771. Call right now for a free expert reputation analysis. It's easy to squash the unfair attacks with our patented system, and the analysis is absolutely free. Make the best things about you jump out in searches. Protect your personal and professional reputation, your business, and your income. Get your free reputation analysis from ReputationDefender.com right now. Call 800-831-0771. 800-831-0771. That's 800-831-0771. Or visit ReputationDefender.com today. Hi, this is James Fox from Chasing UFOs. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. We continue with Micah Hanks, and we're going back to the 1897 mystery where you'd encounter these people with perfectly ordinary names, and sometimes they'd say, you know what, we're testing this aircraft, and eventually we will reveal to the world what it really is and what we can do. Yeah, I mean, to me, I think we have to be really careful uh, in terms of taking you know, at face value, those newspaper reports, because again, on the heels of this discussion about fake news, it would be a little irresponsible to be talking about the way that fake news is a part of American culture going back well into the last couple of centuries and then say, but I also believe these extremely uh, outlandish stories about airships. I mean, that's by no means what I'm saying. Uh, When you talk about fake news, first of all, the modern conception is that there were places, sites, forget about who runs them. Some say the Russians ran some. They deliberately fabricate stories that met expectations in terms of the political world in order to get traffic, to get AdSense dollars from Google. Mm -hmm. It was all about that. That's what fake news was, which again, of course, would be similar to a newspaper in the 19th century fabricating stories in order to gain circulation, to stand out from the pack. Look, we got this story here, but that's also what? the National Enquirer and the Weekly World News? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in likelihood, the majority of the 1890s, if not all, again, of the uh, 1890s airship uh, stories, they were probably just that. I have at very least, though, because in the name of being open-minded, not so open-minded that my brain falls out of my head, although I remove it at night and keep it in a nice you know, container by my bed when I sleep, just, you know, it's good for you. But, uh, but I maintain that uh, you have to be open-minded enough to at least to entertain the idea uh, knowing that there were varieties of crude airships that you know had predated the 1896-1897 era and that some of them actually had gotten off the ground. I mean, there's an article at my website, if you go to micahanks.com forward slash blog, uh, where you can read all the articles that I've got up there and they cover a wide range of subjects, not just UFOs, but one about the airships that I delve into actually names all of the different California airship projects Crude though they were, some of which got off the ground and absolutely predated the 1896-1897 period where this airship wave was going on. I also get it to Charles Abbott Smith, and I've talked a good bit about whether or not there's a likely case to be made that he indeed built an airship that somehow was kept all out of the history books, unlike the others that preceded it. And, you know, you've got some of these inventors like Solomon Andrews, who had even built airships, I think, as early as the 1860s. Uh, one of his models was uh, test-flown in, uh, at the Smithsonian and was actually observed by President Lincoln. Andrews had hoped to try and use this airship for the uh, purpose of, of trying to aid the Union Army. At that point, they basically thought that it would be too costly to build these things and that 
uh, with the tides of war turning, it wouldn't necessarily aid the war effort. But Andrews later revisited that idea and wanted to try and get investors for building an airship, which would be the first, had it gotten off the ground, no pun intended, these would have been the first airships that would have provided commercial transportation via air between New York and Philadelphia. Again, that never ended up happening. But Andrews had test flown a, a simpler design and, and effectively so for Lincoln during the uh, or toward the end of the Civil War. So, I mean, yeah, many don't know about these instance, instances where there were actual valid airships that had been built. The question is, could, could something of the magnitude that was reported in the Sacramento Bee and other newspapers there around 1896 and 1897, I mean, could something that large have successfully flown and yet managed to be kept off of the history books? Now, I'll say this, Gene, there's one other reason why we might see things like that showing up, UFO reports, that is, in newspapers that does not have to do with, you know, AdSense in the modern era and, you know, increasing circulation as it did back decades ago. That would have been after the end of the Second World War, the purpose of trying to utilize propaganda to misinform our enemy. And as Joseph Farrell and others have asserted, New York Times reports of a UFO hovering over the River Thames with an iron cross on it. What does that obviously seem to entail? Well, that the Germans had built flying saucers. Why would the New York Times then report on something like this after the 1947 observation by Kenneth Arnold and several other subsequent observations? In likelihood, it was probably something that was intentionally put in that newspaper with hope that the Russians would see that and interpret it as being great. The Americans have gotten some great new technology probably acquired from the Germans. And they were using probably the flying saucer craze, some intelligence agency presumably, to their benefit so as to try and misinform the enemy about the kind of weaponry and technology we had at our disposal. That's Joseph Farrell's idea, which to me, that's a really plausible scenario. And again, why there may be a fake news story that would have appeared in a venerable news source like the New York Times. Well, that certainly is open for many, many fascinating possibilities. Definitely, that might have happened. But of course, there are theories that some of the early UFO episodes were government fake-ups. We have, for example, James Carrion with that book he came out with some time ago called The Rosetta Deception about the ghost rockets. He was going to add that to Roswell, too, but he's kind of been out of touch since then, so I have no idea what he plans. That was interesting, by the way, because I remember when you guys had him on the Paracast, uh, Gene had mentioned when he began talking about the ghost rockets as being essentially a psyop. I own the Rosetta Deception. I've read it, and I I think that the information in the book is actually quite good. I think that you know he, he refers to Uncle Joe, uh, Joseph Stalin, throughout the book, and you know I think, frankly, as a matter of editorial opinion, would have been better just to call him Stalin, but that's a minor critique. Uh, but I remember Chris O'Brien mentioning, he says, I'm surprised some of this may have slipped by Micah Hanks. Well, let me just say for the record, uh, especially if James Carrion is listening, and perhaps after this, maybe he'll get back in touch, I fundamentally agree with his argument in the book. And in my book, although where I'm talking about the ghost rockets, I begin with the Scandinavian case, and I do look at those as a matter of, of history. I by no means make the case that there's any kind of an alien technology behind these, nor that there is necessarily a continuum between those reports and the later technologies that I outlined throughout the decades that would follow, which were, again, covered in the book because they were similar enough to projectile or jet technologies, which would have been of some sort of experimental design. What's more interesting than the 1946 Scandinavian cases, in, in truth, are the numerous cases that would follow in the, in the decades thereafter and the ongoing reports, which really got me interested in writing a book about that to begin with. The Aviation Safety Reporting System, uh, which is a database maintained by NASA, it's hard to find good UFO cases in that database. And I've, I mean, I've spent a couple of years combing it, but I've found some really weird ones among the few that I have found. 
uh, one of which, of course, involved this bizarre, rectangular, dark-colored object that suddenly just passes very quickly under an aircraft. And for several minutes thereafter, it experienced all kinds of different uh, electronic disturbance on board the, the, the plane. It was a passenger plane. They couldn't identify this thing. They said whatever it was was big, flat, rectangular, dark, and moving extremely fast. And it was able to duck under their aircraft and avoid a collision. But they experienced all this electronic disturbance on board the craft in the cockpit for 20, 25 minutes thereafter. When you find something like that in the Aviation Safety Reporting System database reported by professional pilots uh, who report anonymously so as to avoid things like litigation and concerns about that, I mean, I find those to be very interesting reports. The problem is it makes them, by virtue of, of their anonymity, it makes them more difficult to follow up on as UFO investigators. And, they're, again, they're relegated to that wasteland of the anecdotal UFO evidence that we have where there are these remarkable stories that do seem to describe extremely advanced aviation technologies in our midst, and yet which we seem have to have no accountability for or, or idea about their origin, apart from the speculation. So many possibilities, but where do we center on something that UFO researchers can look for? Because right now there's so little UFO research even being done. This is an issue I've been uh, actually talking about with my friend Robbie Graham. He's putting together this anthology that I'm contributing to, uh, which is about sort of reframing the debate on UFOs. And uh, I, I see that uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about in that, in that essay that I contributed for Robbie dealt with uh, my favorite book on UFOs, which I know I've brought up in the past with you, uh, Gene, and it's called The UFO Handbook. Uh, it was written by Alan Hendry, who was... <laughs> He was a pro-UFO investigator, but a skeptical one, but nonetheless a pro-UFO investigator who even Philip J. Class referred to the book as one of the most important books ever written on UFOs. So when you've got a skeptic like Class who's talking about the importance of a book written by a UFO proponent, I mean, that in itself is, is you know, no small feat. Uh, well, is therefore is, that damning with faint praise that we even accept the book because Class would recommend it? That seems just like such an oddball thing to happen. We've got a lot more to happen with one more segment with our friend Micah Hanks of the Graylian Report. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items. And entails t-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast jumbo tote bag, all sorts of t-shirts and jackets and stuff like that for men and women. We have a Paracast aluminum water bottle. All this stuff, you go to store.theparacast.com, store.theparacast.com. What makes it special is that the items are the best quality, you know, great T-shirts, fabrics, and they have our official logo on them. That's what makes them special in multiple sizes and colors. We even have stuff for children, stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the Paracast. You go to store.theparacast.com, stop by, and take a shopping tour. Hi, this is Ted Anderson. I'm here to tell you about GCNTelecare.com, a team of board-certified doctors assisting you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 
365 days a year. Within 15 minutes of registration, care your family can afford. Revolutionizing the healthcare industry, virtual consulting, providing diagnosis of non-emergency medical issues by phone or secure video on computer or smart mobile devices. GCNTelecare.com. Virtual care anywhere. Why be held hostage by your wireless carrier for two years? What if there were no contracts, no activation fees, no tracking, tracing, or draconian gimmicks, all on America's largest 4G LTE networks? Introducing PixWireless.com. Activate your Sprint, AT&T, and unlock GSM phones instantly. Bring your own device and make the switch today. Here's how. Call or click 1-866-205-9513 or PixWireless.com, spelled P-I-X, PixWireless.com. This is Dan Pilla. Do you owe the IRS money you can't pay? Are tax debts crippling you? I've defended people from the IRS for over 30 years. I've helped thousands and I can help you too. I wrote the book on IRS settlement and I'm telling you, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX to finally get free of IRS debt. With the IRS's new programs, there's never been a better time to solve your problem. Call 800-34-NO-TAX. That's 800-34-NO-TAX or my website, danpilla.com. Are you happy washing your hands with harsh chemicals? Are you happy doing laundry with detergents? Are you happy paying high prices? Find your happiness with Pure Soap. These all-natural, earth-friendly Pure Soaps are the very best you've ever used. Buy in bulk. Get a 12, 36, or 48-month supply. Or get items individually and still save big. You're getting soap products twice as good as what you're using now. Earth-friendly and natural soaps. Your family deserves the best. Happiness is 5starsoap.com. Why not put your money up the drain for a change? See them at 5starsoap.com or call 1-800-340-7091 for a catalog. Cal Bend Soap Company can save you thousands of dollars and give you good old-fashioned real soaps that are triple concentrated. Soaps made from vegetable and coconut oils. See their full selection of soaps at 5starsoap.com. That's F-I-V-E starsoap.com. Or call 1-800-340-7091 for a catalog. Water is the single most important thing your body needs, so you want to be sure it's the best for you and your family. Since 2005, thousands have depended on Berkey Purified Water. The Berkey Guy provides the lowest priced filtration systems in every size. For incredibly delicious water now and in an emergency, get to GoBerkey.com or call 877-886-3653. 877-886-3653. GoBerkey.com. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast. So indeed, one more segment with Micah Hanks. Fascinating journey to the frontiers of UFO research. So all these side issues such as mystery satellites and moonlets and the 1897 airships. Finding a way to actually get some research to be done. Because I hate to think here, as I get older that I'm going to leave wherever I'm going to leave. I'm going to go to wherever I go to. And some people will suggest where I'm going. Whatever it is, I hate to think that after all these years, we learn absolutely nothing, and it just keeps seeming that's the way it is. Right. I mean, I have that same concern, Gene. But hey, guess what? Here it is, the final segment, and there is hope. And, uh, you know, I'll refer to something that one of the uh, folks there at forums.theparacast.com had posted they wanted to know, could something like the Black Knight satellite be monitored or captured in any way via an effort by the U.S. government? Well, 
I think the problem is, is that in likelihood, in my opinion, the, the majority of seemingly exotic aircraft that are buzzing around out there, I certainly think that there are some. And I, in my opinion, the best evidence in modern times for these are these large uh, triangular-shaped aircraft. I mean, I've spoken with more individuals than I can count, former U.S. Air Force servicemen, housewives, uh, you know, geologists, physicists, astronomers. I've, I've spoken with a lot of people over the years who have said that they've seen these things. Average Joe's making a midnight run to the local donut store. I mean, I kid you not. And I've reported on a lot of these on my podcast, The Graylian Report, and I've written about them a lot of the, uh, over the years. One of my favorite cases, of course, occurred in, I believe, uh, January of 2001 up there in, um, I think it was Southern Ohio. A number of different police departments and officers from different municipalities and different police uh, departments observed this aircraft, this very large triangular aircraft as it's passing over uh, this region. Uh, or I'm sorry, I think I said Ohio, I meant Illinois. So anyway, uh, the story, and you can, you can look this up online, but there have been a lot of different interpretations of what was seen, and one that was offered by skeptic Brian Dunning had been that this was just one of the American airship company's blimps, and they were giving a VIP tour. But the thing is, is that how could several different law enforcement officers, one of whom actually managed to take a really bad photograph of the thing with a Polaroid camera, they all described it as being triangular in shape, slow-moving, unlike any aircraft they had ever seen, almost completely silent. Not only do we have the question of why would all of the police officers have completely mistaken the shape of the aircraft. Yeah, it was dark outside, but I mean, they nonetheless said that they could distinctly see due to the lighting on the aircraft itself and also lighting from ground-based sources that this aircraft, whatever this thing was, was triangular shaped. You know, Dunning respect his opinion for trying to come to a conclusion about this, sure, but, but he doesn't give us any kind of a reason why a VIP tour would have been given at 3 a.m., nor does, is there any information provided in terms of records of flights by that airship company in that area at that time that would conclusively prove that that's what it was. I mean, in other words, the skeptical determination was equally speculative. And frankly, in some ways, I find it just as credulous as the notion that this was some crazy aircraft from Zeta II Reticuli. So I think that there's something. And I have seen photos. I've spoken with people over the years. Dunning and others have argued, of course, that, well, but, you know, these things being triangular in shape, no two descriptions of the aircraft seem to match. But there are a lot of consistencies that do remain, largely that it's a large triangle, slow-moving, dark-colored, sometimes a reddish light in the center on on the uh, underside, the base. So I do think that there are aircraft that exist. I don't know whose they are. In likelihood, they're probably some sort of a stealth technology, perhaps a stealth blimp. How do we study these things? Can we rely on the government to do that? Well, if they are government aircraft, probably not, coming back to the question from forums.theparacast.com. So what we do have, however, are civilian flight tracking technologies like flight radar and others. You know, you can download that app on your iPhone. We're getting to a point more and more where tracking capabilities can be easily managed from your home computer, from your smartphone, when you're standing out there in the yard looking at the stars at night. And I think that we are seeing right now, and ever increasingly so, Gene, technologies that are freely available or easily accessible to the civilian public, which I think are going to help people, if they are conscientious in their efforts in doing so, really rein in on the varieties of technology that may be flying around in our sky and our ability to observe those and think and observe them critically, it's going to, I think, improve over time. But it takes a conscientious effort in order to do so. We can't just go out there and say, dang, there's another UFO. I think people need to educate themselves about what they're seeing and the technologies that can improve their ability to observe those kind of things. So we're, we're seeing a trend going in that direction. So I would say it's, it's hopeful. And yeah, maybe in the coming years with flight radar tracking technologies and things like this, you know, improved night vision technologies and things, that we will 
hopefully begin to learn some more about these. But again, what we have been studying for a long time, it may not at the end turn out to be what we have long thought it was, what Kehoe may have thought it was. I hear what you're saying. I hope. I'll try to remain optimistic. On the other hand, maybe the forces behind the UFOs don't want us to solve it. Yeah, that's always a possibility, too. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm not one that uh, tends to gravitate Gene toward the dark, nefarious conspiracy. I think listeners of this show who've heard me and who have endured my many (laughs) appearances on this show with you pick that up from me. But part of the reason why is because I am hopeful that maybe there will be certain uh, resolution that is brought to the study uh, in the years to come. That is, barring, of course, that whoever or whatever is behind the technology uh, isn't in this to remain kept away and hidden. Well, I don't know. I think part of what it is is that UFOs may be an educational process, and that's why you know, that's, it never gets yeah. solved. That's, that's similar to what Jacques Vallée has said. You know, whether or not there is a control mechanism or, or something that is re-engineering and reordering the way that we perceive reality, you know, that's a pretty far out there idea. But, I mean, what if in certain circumstances, certain things that we are capable of perceiving – we nonetheless are incapable of perceiving correctly. That makes sense. And so the mind presented with something that is so far out there and so mind-numbing and so awe-inspiring, we can see it, but the, the, but the mind interprets phenomena in very strange ways. We already know this through our psychological studies over the last several decades. What if, I mean, could there be any phenomena known to exist that were so strange that as a person is perceiving it, our mind attempts to reorder it into some sort of a component that can fit into the reality that we know and that we understand those things we're comfortable with. That is an argument some have raised about UFOs over the years. It could be that part of the misperception of the phenomena, if indeed one exists, is that it is so strange and so far beyond human conception that our mind struggles to reckon with it. And our perception of the phenomena is that is our mind, again, kind of trying to reorganize data, which is far beyond what the mind is, uh, the human mind at least, is designed to be able to comprehend. Valet and others have made that argument. And I mean, who knows? Maybe that is in the, some of those far out cases, the stranger UFO cases, maybe there is an element to it uh, that is the human mind itself struggling to try and comprehend something it wasn't designed to be able to relate to. Well, there you go. There you go. In any case, this is something that we will continue to go on with. And hopefully if it doesn't happen during my lifetime or Chris's lifetime, it will happen with... Micah's lifetime because he's much, much younger. He's a young whippersnapper. <laughs> well, I'm older than I look, and I certainly feel older than I am. We'll, we'll leave it at that. And I, I hope that within my lifetime, I get to actually talk to Chris O'Brien again because, you know, I've missed him the last few times I've been on the show. So uh, here's sending some good vibes to Chris and everything. And uh, I know he had some health issues before, so I, I'm sure he's on the mend and look forward to talking with him next time. Indeed. Indeed. Please tell us. Micah Hanks, where we can find more of the stuff that you do. Of course, yes. yeah. Of course, the podcasts are at Report, G-R-A-L-I-E-N, report.com. Uh, for those who are interested in uh, hearing some of my opinions on current events, news, and yes, even the dreaded P-word, politics, uh, you can go to middletheory.com, which is where we put up the weekly podcast that is not related to The Unexplained, that my co-host, Mr. McNonymous, Christopher McCollum, and I do. Uh, And then finally, of course, all information about me, articles, all kinds of other things, too. And contact information is at my website, micahhanks.com. Those are the ways to reach me, Gene. And, of course, anybody out there who'd like to, you're welcome. You can find us on Twitter if you look for the Paracast. You can find us on Facebook if you look for the Paracast Fan Club, and you'll find, too. 
How about that? I have a second radio show called The Tech Night Out Live about personal technology that you might want to check out. You'll also want to check out the Paracast Plus. Go to plus, P-L-U-S dot, theparacast.com. That's plus dot, theparacast.com, where we offer several special features. One, a commercial-free version of this show, free of the network ads. We also offer the After the Paracast podcast, which is an amazing and unpredictable show. You never know what's going to happen on After the Paracast. You never know at all, because we don't know. It's something that we allow last-minute events to dictate whether we just do color commentary or have a special guest. You can subscribe to this and more. The Paracast Plus, go to plus.theparacast.com. That's plus.theparacast.com. Prices start just $1.49 a week. We even have lifetime subscriptions. Micah Hanks, thanks for joining us on The Paracast. Always a pleasure, Gene. The Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. <laughs>